1: Have you thought of breaking
0: through? Ain't it part of what you do? Catch a victim while he's dumb, break his larynx with it's time. time, time, and it's time, time to get high over the same goddamn dream. It's exactly what it seems. Wake up today. Just to lay back down and say I won't be coming back Let's call it a heart attack Give me some of that knack This is just a final piggyback Baby, you'll flip on me to my
2: passions left me be When I had a place to
0: sit A goddamn attitude to fit Talking smoothly with a spit but Things have changed and I have quit
2: God. And welcome to a brand new life, to a brand new day All the way from the wastelands of California My name is Michael and I'll be your designated driver this evening I'll be providing you stimulation in between your ears, and well, you get the point. I look forward to once again serve you those sounds of salvation. First time listeners, turn on, tune in, and drop out. This is a very different kind of show. A place where we don't feel so alone. Let us chase away the light no matter what you at home choose to believe. I do admire you for your curiosity, live and direct, and in the flesh. Oh yes, full house tonight. I hope you stick around, boys and girls. Do remember, on this day in history, July 20th, in 1969, the Apollo 11 lunar module carrying Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins lands on the surface of the moon. Mr. Buzz Aldrin and Mr. Neil Armstrong walk on the moon seven hours later. Amazing. I hope all of you out there are doing well here tonight, by the way. To those who are not doing so well mentally or physically, remember how quickly life can turn around in an instant. Last week, Joshua Free and Lee Austin joined me here, and I had a great time. I really liked that episode. Please take the time to listen to that one if you haven't already. Now, I believe we will be joined by my second guest first, Mr. Paul Bamakos along with Mr. Frank Bacon, who will be drawing assignment here tonight as co-host. I'm absolutely thrilled to have him back on. We will be discussing cryptocurrency and other pleasant subjects like Jeffrey Epstein and that special island out there. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for allowing me into your hearts and into your minds. Here we are again on a night like this. Thank you to those in America for supporting the program and also those outside of America for your support. Guten Morgen to the German listeners out there, and of course, our friends in the UK. Now let's get this started here. Frank, are you with me? Frank, are you alive?
1: Yes, I am, Michael. How are you?
2: I'm good, my friend. I had to unmute you there.
1: Sorry about that. Hey, no problem. You had to meet me in the first place. I'm I'm rather loud, and obnoxious. So um, feel free to do it again if I if I need to go uh, silent.
2: I'm so glad you're here. And by the way, we are joined by another soul, Mr. Paul Mamakos. What's going on, Paul?
3: Hi, Michael. Doing great.
2: Yeah, thank you so much hey. for being here, my friend.
1: Paul you're, sounds like um, he's in a dome or something.
2: He is in a dome. <laughs> he's yep. in an, an enclosed dome.
3: The 30 foot uh, diameter dome. Yeah,
2: that's right. Flat Earth.
3: Hey, it's, a, <laughs> it's pretty good. I like it.
2: Oh, yes. No problem. And what's going on with both of you gentlemen this evening? Are both of you doing well?
1: Yeah, I'm doing I'm doing spectacular uh, compared to where I was uh, a couple of years ago um, when last we really had a chance to uh, connect. Uh, yes. when I came through town and, and um, but uh, much, much better these days. How about how about you, Paul?
3: Yeah, Frank, um, it's the summer evening here and it's I hear the crickets outside and it's uh, one of my favorite times of the year. Hmm
1: perfect and Wait, of course too. I, I I yeah yes mm-hmm.
2: and of course for those that don't know Frank Mr. Frank Bacon has actually appeared on the program uh, 2 years ago to be exact mm-hmm.
0: I can't even You're believe probably it probably
1: on think. a channel yeah I'm probably on a channel or or a recording that's that's long since ended up in the archives or or uh, locked away somewhere else in the internet um but uh Oh, we've talked since then. It's not just been about shows. In fact, I've I've come across you a few times in some live chats, and, and we've had other conversations. Plus, we have you know um, uh, familiar friends all across the interweb, wouldn't you say?
2: Yes, very familiar friends. Very, mm-hmm. very familiar. And we have so much to talk about here tonight. And of course, you will be doing a bit of co-hosting with me here tonight. We will be getting into cryptocurrency right now with Mr. Paul Mamakos who, of course, we knew him last week or a couple of weeks ago, rather, as someone who is just purely an author that talks about astral projection. But now we get to choose just another side of one of many layers. That is Mr. Paul Mamakos. And Paul, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and some of your experiences with cryptocurrency.
3: Right. Um, in 2006, my dad passed away. He was 80 years old, and uh, he left us kids different stocks and things in the market. So, they say within five years, people lose all their money, you know, in the stock market or wherever. So, I, I went through all kind of things, and I uh, I learned about stocks and different things. And um, so, since 2007, I've traded different things. And um in 2005 I actually got into the world of business through a book by Robert Kiyosaki the um, rich dad poor dad so since then I've been uh, looking at different mm-hmm. fields um to you know participate in the world more and um do better for myself yeah. um so more That's recently fantastic. with the, you, you, sorry you,
1: you, <laughs> go ahead frank um, more what recently
3: with cryptocurrency I didn't
1: mean to cut today. you off as just you brought up Kiyosaki you know Robert Kiyosaki is yeah. very famous thing. Um, he's been lately spotted in the uh, anarcho Poco or the uh, the anarchist group.
3: Okay, so yeah, I, I have his book Fake, and uh, so I would imagine he'd be doing some of that also. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Kind of red pill and, philosophy, and, maybe.
1: Yeah. Did you so so in the in the at least last decade have you been moving out of uh, the markets and more into to crypto or or are um, you just mainly been yeah, in stock trades?
3: He, I'm entirely out of stocks. I've, I've I've made a lot of money and lost a lot of money. So. Um, uh times when I thought I would have, you know, made money, I didn't make money. So um, there's a lot of different influences. And uh, so I'm into real estate. I've uh, flipped a few houses, and I'd like to tell people about how they can buy a house for less than $10,000 um, easily. Oh, wow. and, then, oh, yeah. um, and then also talk about cryptocurrencies. Yeah. Now, I've been into crypto since uh, 2017. I, uh, someone told me about it, and um, around May is when I got into it full time, you know.
2: Yes, that's incredible, really. I had no idea that this would be so lucrative, especially the first time I heard about it uh, through Frank, really. Well, I I had heard about it before Frank mentioned it, but he's someone who really opened my eyes uh, towards all of this, towards uh, cryptocurrency and where it may potentially lead. And it seems like it's caused a a bit of an impact. Even the government now wants to regulate it. And you know what happens when uh, that
1: occurs? Yeah, it usually goes through the through the roof. So now's a good time to get in. As always. I mean it's like any time. Just get in if you're in it. Uh if you're in it, great. If you're not in it and, and you're queasy about it, probably get in it anyways. It's it's um it's like the Gutenberg press. It's a technology that that will not just go away because a couple of silly men in, in suits think they can make it go away. That's akin to somebody saying that the sun will not rise tomorrow simply because they say so. So yeah, as regulations come down the pike, you also have to weigh that with the fact that this technology doesn't really um, work off of regulations. And it's, uh, it's, it's way ahead of its time for people on, I think, on this planet that are looking for some unique solutions to some pretty um, difficult problems, difficult challenges. What what do you know so far about um, uh, or crypto, Paul, or what have you found that, that's uh, interested you?
3: Yeah, for sure. Um, regulation, uh, different countries are have already passed regulation and um, the U.S. is still going through that process. Um, you know, I think Sweden already has their uh, laws down um, and Malta. They already had their act together. Um, so, uh, you know, over the last week, Steve Mnuchin um, and also President Trump have tweeted and talked about crypto and also the um, Bank of International Settlements um, and uh, the IMF and the World Bank. They're all looking at crypto. So uh, there, it looks like there's a lot happening. And. Uh, you know, with the dollar and different fiat currencies around the world, c- countries can print as much as they want whenever they want it. And so that'll dilute the dollar. And the gold used to be that savior for the uh, for value. But now cryptocurrency, there are many of them that are limited in quantity. So that helps to um, give people a place to go to put their their value. You know. Yeah. And one thing that
2: mm-hmm. I forgot to mention here really quickly is we might even have a couple listeners out there who don't know anything about cryptocurrency at all. I thought right now we Ooh. could we could sort of wow. explain it really quickly. If if we even have enough time to fully explain it, um, Paul, what would be the easiest way to describe a cryptocurrency?
3: Okay, um, first I want to say I I have a playlist that I grouped together like introduction from several different youtubers and also you know some really good information i think you retweeted it so there's a playlist that i have that uh, michael has um retweeted with a bunch of videos that you can learn more about and and just you know sk- skip some of the mistakes that a lot of people make you know so mm-hmm. ask your question again just
1: i was just you, go ahead yeah, Frank. Get, get us started do i would thing. love to i would love to get your perspective of of how you would explain to an average um citizen or an average person out there who, right. who may not have ever heard about it yeah what, because how would you describe it
2: yeah because now people are just starting to Really uh, take notice of this back in uh, even back in twenty seven not not too twenty seventeen not too many people even understood what cryptocurrency was
3: okay, so if uh you send someone an email it's kind of like an email versus a letter in the mail, an email will get there quicker, so in the same way um, there's a digital money it's like a dollar or a yen or a different currency um, or different cryptocurrency. Where you can send it instantly and it'll settle in a different, you know, different times depending on the currency. But you can send it just like you would email, instead of putting it, you know, taking it on a plane or something and, and taking it to someone physically. You can just send it to them over the computer. You know? mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I would agree with that. It's a it's a essentially a, a computer based technology of currency. And and just to go a little deeper down that that rabbit hole, how they actually – because people have been trying to do this for many decades, and and, uh, it came together 10 years ago in January with a white paper. Um, Actually, I'm sorry, uh, 10 years ago, a a little bit over 10 years ago. In January, it started running. Bitcoin was the first distributed ledger technology known as cryptocurrency. It's called a blockchain. And um, started in January of of, uh, 2009, if I'm not mistaken. Right, Paul? Something like that, yeah, eight or nine. Yeah, yeah, and and, uh, it it spawned a a lot of different versions, so there's a a lot of different cryptocurrencies out there based on a technology essentially called blockchain, which means distributed ledger, which means a copy of the database that everybody uh, needs to agree on is shared, and then cryptography keeps all the independent uh, operations on that blockchain secure. So rather than Trying to secure one centralized server where all the information is stored um, centrally that could be hacked, or that could be, you know, you, you need somebody in charge of that. So think of the Federal Reserve, for example, as a as a loose uh, uh, analog to that. But with with cryptocurrencies, the ledger is distributed, meaning everybody can see everything that's going on in the ledger in real time. But if it, if if a particular um, transaction is not your transaction, you're not going to have any of the relevant information on there uh so it's about keeping the ledger open so that there's a shared consensus um basis for it uh that that the reason for that is that tends to keep out the the muckery the hacking the uh people that try to um steal from it so to speak and as long as the individual that's using the cryptocurrency knows how to keep good cybersecurity standards keep their keys safe and the and by keys we would the keys is another Word for say a password. What a what a key is essentially a long cryptographic hash that can decode your information on the on the blockchain. Right. Um, so if people adopt a blockchain, they're adopting the standard of literally becoming their own version of the currency. They are they are becoming a, their own bank in the currency. And there's no real central processor, there's no real central CEO or central company that you can go to and ask for permission to change or anything like that. It has to work as a giant ecosystem. So for the last decade, it's been an amazing experiment, done some incredible things.
2: You know, I still recall JP Morgan CEO, uh, Jamie Dimon, I believe is his name. Uh, I might be wrong about that, but I think that was his name. I remember him saying that Bitcoin was a fraud and it would eventually blow over and Personally, it seems like it's going just fine, going strong still. And of yeah. course, the government sure doesn't like being left out. They want to mm-hmm. regulate cryptocurrencies, like I mentioned earlier, and so did uh, Paul here. And like, again, that's never a good sign. And of course, we did hear from the treasury uh, secretary there during that press conference. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he emphasized that they are against this because potentially because people, Use cryptocurrencies to fund terrorism, they say, mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. kept they kept yeah. mentioning terrorism and uh, drugs and human trafficking. It's
1: interesting. It's interesting right. you bring that aspect up because the the Obama administration sent four hundred billion dollars to Iran in cash. Right. So, um, you know, those the, I, I don't get caught up in those loose um, cul-de-sacs of, of argumentation. If people are stuck in that mindset, that's where they want to be. Um Many years ago, when I started using cryptocurrency, it came at a time where um, I kind of needed to to make some very big changes and And so, what I've been utilizing cryptocurrency for is not the standard approach. The standard approach is buy a bunch of cryptocurrency, hold on to it, and it'll go up in value and That has happened quite a bit i mean the The number of millennial millionaires that have now um just exponentially grown in this country is is all due to this new technology that out of nowhere is bringing value. To, um, to people. And this is happening in third world nations. And this is happening in, um, you know, old Soviet <laughs> empire. Uh, there's an entire country that's kind of loosely based on a cryptocurrency now that's uh, called Liberland. That's in the yes, uh, just, in disputed territories. Right. I was
2: just about to mention here what your opinion was on that uh, Facebook's uh, Libra, their cryptocurrency. And I feel... That that's something that should be more heavily talked about, especially when it comes to Facebook and all their dirty deeds that they've done over mm-hmm. the years. Do can mm-hmm. we can you really trust Facebook with cryptocurrency? That's well that's what I'm wondering.
1: Exact, well, it's the exact um it's counter factual or counterintuitive to what the whole purpose of cryptocurrency is. See, they they now want to take cryptocurrency, which is kind of more of an open source. Think of the World Wide Web as it's, it's um it's a protocol. If you if you were to use Bitcoin, which is the first cryptocurrency out there, that's the one that's the oldest and the most valuable right now, to be a participant on, crypto, uh, on Bitcoin, all you have to do is download the software yourself and run it on hardware that you trust, and you can be uh, operating um, that, that network. In fact, you can even purchase hardware that's designed to um, help support the network, right. and the network will pay you. That's called mining. So when, when a, a major conglomerate comes along like a Facebook wants to adopt the technology and then centralize it, it's not really cryptocurrency anymore. So what, what Facebook is doing is they are one of several people that are looking into a particular blockchain project called Libra. And with their deep pockets and things like that, they're going to effectively kind of control how that, that blockchain is, is built and managed. And they're going to try and bring that as a product into their ecosystem so people can start paying. The idea being that with cryptocurrency, cause it's, it's a very frictionless type of technology. If I tried to send you a dollar right now, whoop, oh, there's my, uh, there's my cricket, uh, it normally interrupts my calls. I apologize if you can hear them. We can. The That's okay. Okay, good. <laughs> We like it's the crickets, really though. But
2: we like the crickets, by the way. It, it's um, pleasant.
1: Plenty out here in northern New Mexico, so um, that's they'll, right. They'll, they'll chime in.
2: Yeah, you're in northern New easy. Mexico, man. I I forget mm-hmm. you're out there.
1: Mm-hmm. High, high desert, like you are. That's wild. Where Where about do you hail from, Paul? Yeah, I'm in Virginia. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay.
2: Paul never has I to worry so. about the the hot weather.
3: And it's very moist <laughs> outside and humid. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I bet. Um, but does that, do you have anything to, to add to the Libra project? Because it is a very important subject right now. It's, it's exactly kind of what purists like me or, or maximalists like myself are, are trying to avoid. We don't want to work with Facebook and large projects like Libra, for example. Correct. Um, mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, so Libra is, I think, going to be a stable coin. And um, uh, Jamie Dimon, his company started a uh, JPM coin. So he kind of did a 180 turn on there. So
2: Right, uh, right. Exactly. So both
3: Libra and and the JPM Coin are both stable coins. You know, I don't know how that'll mm-hmm. change in value versus fiat in the future, but um that's their their model, you know.
1: Yeah, I think these uh, are the, this is the tech. Uh, yeah, go ahead, I'm sorry.
3: Yeah, the Senate and and um the House they're they're talking about, you know, that caused a big change in uh change of pace for uh the laws in the US for um cryptocurrencies, you know. Mhm. Mhm.
1: Yeah, I, I, the, you use the term stablecoin, so that's probably even more confusing if people are, aren't familiar with cryptocurrency. So if we're saying that cryptocurrency itself is kind of a technology layer, that's the way I like to explain it. Just like the internet is, the, you know, the uh, TCP IP protocol is really your layer for the internet and HTML is just on top of that. So yeah, so if you have, if you have like
3: a, yeah. a US dollar, if you log into your bank account and you see a number on the screen for your balance, that's almost like a stablecoin. That's like on exactly. a ledger at the bank for how much right. value you have or how much you know money. Um, not, not actually money. So Gold it, is so money, but this currency. is more fiat. But, um, so right, a stable you know, coin a will be it, pegged a, to something. It, it won't change in value. No.
1: Right. It's a recording uh, a technique. In other words, a way to, to give a receipt. So a stablecoin is a way for them to package a value like a dollar into a, a tokenized asset that you can send on the Internet as quickly as email. So, um, for example, I'm I, I, my personal take on a lot of this stuff is that um, we're still in very experimental stages, and it's flashy to use the term cryptocurrency or blockchain. And that's what this Libra Facebook thing is coming together. It's not truly cryptocurrency in the sense of where we've been for the last 10 years. Cryptocurrency is kind of like the Gutenberg printing press, again, where the peasants get a hold of the ability to print their own books in the language they want to read. Does that make sense? and yep. nobody is going to own the printing press so with with um bitcoin for example bitcoin is is a uh, mathematical constant or a mathematical um puzzle that will issue out a total of 21 million tokenizable assets over the course of its 100 year run if it if it's allowed to run it's a protocol that will run for more than 100 years and in that time, it will uh, essentially, like mining gold, put out a, a ratio, of, of a set rate of coins into the network. Those coins go to miners, the people that are actually providing hardware on the network um, for it to do what it's doing. And this is all decentralized open source and and, and not controlled through any kind of uh, uh, centralized conglomerate. So the U.S. can come along and just write a, a law saying, don't touch this. But people all over the world, billions of people all over the world are allowed to or or will. And uh, it will continue to be adopted and grown, but it will not be adopted and grown through centralized means. So the Libra formula or the Libra uh, experiment is kind of a way of centralizing means. They want to play the games. They want to stick to the rules. They want to stay with what the government's been doing, the regulations. And then they'll try to tokenize their asset, or, I'm sorry, um, um, evaluate, evaluate their assets through pegging it to like a dollar. So you know, that's 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 it in kind of a nutshell. I think it's one step away from what Apple just did recently by issuing its own credit card. Is what yeah, Facebook so, is getting so ready to do.
3: Right now, Facebook is looking at 1.3 billion users uh, for this Libra coin. Wow. Uh, you know, potential 1.3 billion.
2: Wow. So,
3: so that's why it's getting the attention uh, now in 2019. Uh, that it it is. You know.
2: Very interesting. Mm-hmm. And, of course, right now is a good time to uh, quickly mention that there are several different kinds of cryptocurrency, such as Litecoin, which appears mm-hmm. to be faster. Correct me if I'm wrong here uh, on that, gentleman. From what I understand mm-hmm. and what I recall, it, it can handle more transactions, and it confirms a bit faster than Bitcoin does. Is that true?
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And so if you're looking at the valuation of Bitcoin or Litecoin, it's it's in a state of of uh, assessment. People are trying to assess the value of it. You might have heard the really famous quote from an infamous uh, character known as John McAfee who says by 2020 Bitcoin will be worth a half a million dollars.
2: Oh, do I.
1: Yes. Yeah. And and it, right now a single Bitcoin is worth about $10,000. Um if, if if you're valuing in, in US dollars, of course you can go over and get um some equivalent form of of uh, lira or, uh, frank or, or, uh, uh, you know, any other currency, sterling, uh, any, any other currency that where there are exchanges, because it's kind of like comic books, you know, as long as you can find somebody who's been collecting these things, you can go and offer them something for it. So when, when the Facebook formula gets, gets going, what it, what it will offer is another on ramp into that, that, that world. Uh, the internet of money is really. Currencies are, the internet of money. And now you have thousands of different internets to choose from. So like the Litecoin internet, the Litecoin network runs much faster than Bitcoin. That's why it was designed the way it was, was to issue a different amount of coins, move the process a bit faster, offer a couple of little tweaks here and there. And then there's other ones. There's Ethereum, which is an entire network based on kind of like Turing complete um, programming languages, where you could actually build smart contracts that self-execute based on information that the internet provides or information that the, the network is providing. So you don't have to trust the human being is going to stamp your paperwork at like the, the uh, county office if you're trying to like up, update your deed or, or something like that. So it's taking the, the process of paperwork that we give to third-party intermediaries that we call governments or corporations, and it's distributing that that method. So it's really making things a lot smarter, faster, easier, and cleaner but it's doing it by giving power back to the people. And and governments and corporations will always always fight that or find a way to, you know, um uh corner the market of it. So, uh, Litecoin is an excellent excellent um uh, alternative coin to Bitcoin if you're looking for uh, uh you know, cryptocurrency that's useful and and um something that you could maybe build your own like uh business off of, you know what I mean? So Definitely. instead of accepting dollars over the counter, you could say, hey, this this coffee shop accepts cryptocurrency, Litecoin accepted here, and then look for an entire market demographic of people that like that cryptocurrency. Does that make sense?
2: Definitely. And there's also a shitcoin as well.
1: <clears throat> plenty, plenty. Yeah. It's not just the, the shitcoin that's named shitcoin, but there's plenty of other shitcoins.
2: <laughs> Definitely. There's there, Yeah, there's two types yeah. of uh, shitcoins. And mm-hmm. uh, speaking of just the primary shitcoin, uh, well, what's your take on that? Is it is it really shitty?
1: I, Pun intended. Per- personally, yeah. <laughs> personally, yeah. I think so. I do. Um, the, the tough part about cryptocurrency is you need adopters that are a little bit computer savvy. It's not really for your grandparents. You don't go in and immediately show your grandparents how they can get into cryptocurrency. It's not that easy of a process. We're talking about an entirely new... Kind of genre of, uh, uh, of IT networking that's, that's come out. Yes. And I'm, so I'm trying. Are yes.
2: This, no. uh, Frank, I just wanted to quickly jump in here and say lots of people out there listening to this. Lots of them are not at all involved with cryptocurrency or have much of a understanding of it. And, uh, for those that do, I, I apologize, but there will be lots of people tuning in for the very first time and trying to make any kind of understanding of this? And Frank, what would you say to those individuals out there who say they are skeptical about cryptocurrency and they don't want to embrace it at all?
1: You know, it's, I'm glad you asked that. It's, those are the folks that I, I, um, Avoid. I, I save a lot of time by not, you know, proselytizing to the to the Luddites, and it's nothing personal. It has nothing to do with like insulting anybody. It's not for everybody. Um, uh, and and it's it's a good time to segue into the kind of work that I'm in. In 2017, I I almost went all in into one particular cryptocurrency, and I'd say that I put a heck of a lot of of my extraneous efforts and time into just focusing on one particular shitcoin, if you will. It wasn't Bitcoin and wasn't Litecoin. And in 20, um, I'm sorry, this was 2016. And in 2016, a new coin was out and it was called STEAM, S-T-E-E-M. So it's two E's. Um, but it operates like the, the concept of the word STEAM, S-T-E-A-M. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of inflationary coin, but it offered a lot of other, um, utilities. And that's the problem with a many of the other altcoins out there is if there's no utility yet really established where people are using these coins to bypass the idea of money altogether. So with with Bitcoin, you think of Bitcoin as the first one, the juggernaut. It sta- it's 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 stabilized um, very early on and became valuable because somebody traded ten thousand of these things that were worth nothing one day and bought a pizza within minutes. Um, they traded you know ten thousand coins across the network to somebody they didn't know who then bought a pizza for them and sent it to their address. So it was the first time commerce was kind of um, adopted technology. So by 20, you know, 14, 15, 16, uh, this, this, thousands of coins were out there by now. And one in particular that had come out was called Steam. And Steam was a little different because it created a, um, a sort of social network around the actual cryptocurrency itself. So rather than it being a wallet, you'll hear the term wallet used a lot. In Bitcoin, for example, you have to go out and get a wallet or an electronic wallet in order to take your coins, in a wallet so you can walk around like on a cell phone and pay for things. Well, Steam was taking that a little bit further. And um, I began doing some very experimental sci-fi writing um, many years ago. And, and by the time I was ready to really get a book published, um, I didn't want to go through the trouble of publishing the book. And the Steam Network was out. And that's where I took my sci-fi novel. So to follow my work, for example, you follow it on a cryptocurrency. You're following it on a blockchain. And it's at... Um, Many different places, but one in particular is you can look up the website, STEAMIT, S-T-E-E-M-I-T, STEAMIT.com. Sorry about the gunshots in the background. It's the high desert. Um, STEAMIT.com, put a little slash there, and then the at sign, and at Frank Bacon, and you'll find what looks like a, a simple Twitter account, but it's my account running on the STEAM blockchain, so it's bypassing the need for me to build a website, bypassing the need for me to pay a publisher, bypassing the need for... You know, uh, spending any money, really, because it's all right there loosely attached to a cryptocurrency as a utility project. Does that make sense?
2: Definitely. And, Paul, are you on Steemit yourself?
3: I opened an account, but I didn't fund it to, to make it active. I'm, I'm aware of Steemit. Yeah, you
2: should
1: definitely publish
2: some of your work there.
1: Okay. I'll I'll help you out with that, Paul, either through this this show or or whatnot. But you know, essentially, I, I wrote the book as a way of kind of like a pop-up book, like for preschool. It's a preschool way of getting in and learning how a a blockchain works, how that particular crypto chain a cryptocurrency works, and then how that cryptocurrency is effectively creating a new form of social network that's uncensorable. Because that's the other thing is this technology, why it scares governments and scares organizations so much, is because You're giving too much power back to the people. You can't have them just printing words willy-nilly, especially in today's environment where a lot of folks are getting taken off the Internet left and right overnight. Very fast. Lucky lucky thing is those are not gunshots. That's just leftover fireworks. So, again, I apologize for the noise in the background.
2: I know. I was wondering what was going on back there. Was a bounty hunter nearby?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Not one that's that's succeeded yet. So, um, no, we're good. Nice.
2: Very nice. And uh, Paul, I- I'm sure you've come across individuals as well who are very skeptic- uh, skeptical about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Would you say this is something safe to do?
3: Well, you know, different financial advisors, I'd like to say I'm not a financial advisor, right, right. and this is just for entertainment purposes. I'm glad Nicole. you said yeah. that, by the way. Okay. Um, <laughs> this is my own personal thing, what I've been doing, Okay. Um, So this is considered a new asset class, and um, universities and colleges like uh, Yale and Harvard have their endowment funds that invested huge amounts of money into this kind of thing. So some people say you may maybe invest 1% or 5% of your investment um, portfolio into this new asset class, and if it goes up, great. If it goes down, no worries. It's just a small percentage, you know? So there's cyclical bear and bull market, you know, bear and bull markets, and uh, we just got out of a long bear market. So um, traders or um, different people who do different types of uh, investment styles, you know, they might, you know, since it's a maybe a bull market we're going into, then um, most things will probably go up. So um, in 2017, you could invest in almost anything, any type of crypto, and you probably make money on it. In 2018, it crashed, you know. Over 50% in, in at least every single crypto. So there's, you know, there's a place where you can go to Yahoo Finance and see the different types of cryptocurrencies, or there are different websites with the list of all the different, you know, different cryptos. And you can look through them and learn. It's almost like maybe a trading baseball cards or something. Each crypto has a different, different, you know, different makeup. And so one of those sites is CoinMarketCap.com. No, CoinMarketCap dot com, and then I there are others. I'd like some others
1: too. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, I three? recommend CoinMarketCap too. Um, that's a that's a good one if you want to just get an overwhelming list. Just look at the top one hundred coins out there. You'll find Steam floats around the thirty to fifty mark. Bitcoin is always number one, and usually number two is is Ethereum. Um, three and four tend to fight back and forth between like Litecoin and and um, uh, EOS, which is a a new form of Ethereum, so to speak. But uh, again, a lot of these coins haven't struck their their target yet, which is they they haven't become a utilitarian – um product. They're simply like the trading cards right now. You're holding onto it, hoping that you can trade them for more U.S. dollars in the future. And I always tell people that's where you should worry. Whether the price of Bitcoin goes up and down shouldn't bother you. The fact is it's never going to go away. It'll always be there and you should just know how to access it instead of begging for permission through banks and governments to give you some kind of identity that gives you the allowance to go to the bank and get your stuff. So with the Bitcoin I own, I own it, and nobody can take it from me, and I can go to any corner of the world and access it, again, because it's a world network. And when I moved into Steam, Steam was a way of taking the literary uh, utilitarian approach, which is I have a, a literary need you know, to write a book or write some kind of uh, script out there, scripture, whatever. And rather than going and putting it on Facebook or putting it on LinkedIn or, or getting a WordPress.com site – I instead utilize the basic markdown language storage system of their of their cryptocurrency of the Steam cryptocurrency, and it creates a kind of essentially a, a very simple. I don't know if you remember the MySpace days, and, and right before MySpace there was another um, social network called LiveJournal that was just a real simple journaling type. Site. Oh boy, uh, are you familiar with that? Yeah, unfortunately, that yes, out. I re- I recall. Mm. Well that's what this is. It's not anything fancy like Twitter or uh, you know really shiny like Facebook and it doesn't run algorithms and match you up with people or anything. It's just a place where you can go store your uh your work on a blockchain somewhere. So the storage of a sci-fi novel became kind of my novel approach to learning about this and interacting with the people that would probably read or have questions about, you know, my sci-fi novel. So it sped things up for me. It gave me the utilitarian approach of of now having something I had access to that I didn't need permission from a third party to give me. Does that that make sense? Definitely.
2: Hopefully those at home are following along here. It's not exactly that difficult to understand, especially if you get involved yourself. And that's kind of the best way to learn. A hands-on
3: approach. Crypto kind of takes in, out in the, the middle man. So if you're, if you have your own business and you're selling, um, maybe you're paying, you're selling manufactured pricing for your ingredients, or maybe you're selling distributor pricing or wholesale pricing, you're actually, uh, you're kind of skipping all the middle people and just doing retail through the crypto. You're doing immediate transfer of the coin or the token.
1: Mm-hmm. That was my peer to peer approach with just something is uh, something novel with like a written book. But, um, you know, I've, I've, um, uh, consulted people on, on doing a lot of different businesses on that particular platform. It's not easy. It's just if you're going to accept uh, this concept that cryptocurrencies aren't going to go anywhere, they're going to be around for a long time, and if you want to learn it, one of the simpler uh, ones to learn on is the Steam blockchain. And you said that you actually had an account there. So it, how long ago did you you set that up?
3: Within a year and a half ago maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: I might need to create a new one to be honest with you, uh Frank. I lost my uh password. <laughs> I actually copied and pasted it to uh some sort of notepad on my other laptop that uh mm-hmm. just happened to die on me. but the good thing yeah. is I'll just create a new account,
1: yeah, or what we'll do is you know I actually could get you to go back into that into that um uh laptop and probably um recover that because that that story, Michael is prevalent everywhere. People always lose their keys. And this is the unforgiving part of cryptocurrency, right, why it's right. so powerful. Because if you lost your keys or your your login in the normal way, what would you do? You would email somebody like the admin or, or whatever at, at wherever you lost your password, and they would email it back to you. And that shows you the very nature of the problem that we're, that I, at least my work is trying to get out of. And that is, that, People are already kind of honey trapped with their email system. Email is thirty year old technology, and it's the basis for all your identities on all these other networks. And if you remember, something like this happened to a guy back in two thousand fifteen or two thousand sixteen. I think his name was John Podesta, and That's somebody right. just kind of fished his email password. We're we talking and
2: about had... that in a moment here, but go ahead.
1: Mm-hmm. So it's 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 safe to say that if you want to change the future, you got to have to kind of sometimes throw away the past. And start fresh. And, and you know, my approach to writing a a cryptographic sci-fi novel um, on the Internet was only fulfilled when Steam came out and gave me the relevant utilities, the tool necessary to do it where it was peer-to-peer. And I no longer have to worry about a middleman taking any kind of cut or, you know, uh, changing any of my work to fit their uh, profile. So I, I, I've shown people how to do this with other types of, of businesses, too. For example, a tea company where um, an international tea company, uh, like a little mom-and-pop shop here, can be transferring their purchase, purchases for the tea through the blockchain almost instantaneously with payment and, and a guarantee you know, uh, receipt of transmission you know, meaning it's irreversible, not like with credit cards where you can buy something with a credit card, call your credit card company up, and then complain about it and reverse the charge. That can't happen with a cryptocurrency. So it's it's a very useful technique right now to shorten the supply chain, to cut out a whole lot of what we call the extraneous overhead in, um, um, in most businesses. It strangles most businesses. Uh, the way Steam works right now, the Steam blockchain could be used directly as a POS system, a point-of-sale system. And could run a, you know, it could run a department store. It could run a coffee shop. It could run just about any small business that you would want. And I just happen to be using it for um, really crazy sci-fi.
2: A lot of places are starting to adapt and go with certain cryptocurrencies now. Uh, many different countries as well, really starting to get behind it.
1: Russia, for sure. Russia is what's giving value to the Ethereum blockchain, for example. Is right. Russia has been. Very, um very uh, hard at work to ad- adapt to this rather than try to control it, uh, which is what we should be doing in this country. It's probably not going to happen for years, so expect this country to keep pushing the price of cryptocurrencies to the roof, uh, especially if you can't buy cryptocurrencies here in the U.S. because you're so free. <laughs>
2: so. And by the way, you mentioned John McAfee earlier. Uh, are you? Uh, do you agree with what he said, by the way?
1: I, I do. I think it would probably, you know, come close to half of it's going to get to that it, it, to the point that a a, a Bitcoin will be worth a million dollars. It's a trillion dollar technology easily, easily. And um it's just going to take the time for the world to assess that value and move enough of its operations into it for it to it to get to that. So he might be a little early, uh, but it will get to a half million soon. It'll probably make it to about uh $50,000 per Bitcoin by the end of this year probably don't take my word for it don't go taking a, a, you know a mortgage on your house and dump all the money in Cause it 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 goes through like uh, Paul said it goes through bear, bear, there's uh, patterns. there's yeah. patterns mm-hmm. yeah and uh there certainly is a lot of uh influence too in other words a lot of muckery there's a lot of outside. John uh, or, I'm sorry Paul you brought up the stable coin do you remember what the first real stable coin was out there in the crypto world USDT was that it yeah the tether yeah, and Tether was the first attempt to do something like that where they issued a cryptocurrency that said, Hey, for every Tether we issue, we have a dollar sitting in a bank account and we can, we can show it to you. <laughs> so Tether always stays at a dollar. And what it does is a way for people to move in and out of these cryptocurrencies where the crypto might go up for a little bit and they sell at the, at the peak or close to the peak, and take their money, move it right into Tether very quickly because uh, it's another cryptocurrency. So, crypto the crypto moves very, very fast. And then, if the price crashes, they take Tether, and they go back and, and buy the crypto at a lower price. So, there are a lot of traders in this. There are a lot of people that are doing it, not just buy and hold. There are people that are actively trying to play the ups and downs in the market, too. Um, that's not my expertise. I, I really don't recommend that kind of world. I think if you have some money that you're saved, you know, put it in silver and gold, maybe some lead, vodka. Um, but if you have some extra and you want you want money that moves pretty frictionless across the internet to be able to send to people without any worries, that's why you invest in in cryptocurrency. Yeah, that's where you go. Um, yeah, I don't like the idea of it being a money in the mattress kind of effect. It's like buy it, but use it, get in, get involved in it. And one of the first lessons that most people learn is they lose their keys and lose access to their money. That's quite Much common, they right? Lose your keys, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> very common. <laughs> The first rule of Fight club Oh man!
2: Rule. Yes, and Paul. By the way, uh, you tweeted to me earlier today about Bank of America. I read that. Can you explain that for the listeners?
3: Yeah, on July 20th, I think that's today. Um, yeah, it was published uh, or made public that Bank of America had been um, had a, had another patent. They have a many many patents, but um, this is another one that's pending. To use uh, cryptocurrency in a certain way uh, using the Ripple uh, platform, you know, XRP. So it's yeah. pretty interesting. Hmm?
1: Yeah, that not, is interesting. Not a big fan of XRP either. Yeah. XRP was another one of those where it's breaking the, the concept of why a cryptocurrency is built in the first place. They built XRP or Ripple as a new form of the SWIFT network. They wanted to take the SWIFT network, which is this international trade sell- settlement layer that uh, a lot of banks use, if I'm not mistaken. And um yeah. but a lot of people have made great money on Ripple, you know, cause it, it shows up at a low, low price and people buy and hold. It goes up in value over time and makes millionaires. It's that simple. It really is. But the opposite could be true, too. I mean, there are plenty of people that go and buy a lot of these cryptocurrencies and lose the keys. I mean, there's millions of dollars of lost cryptocurrencies already where people are never going to be able to recover um, the value of these tokens that are sitting there clearly on the network. I mean, they don't go anywhere. They're there. People can see them, but you can't get to them because you lose your password.
2: Myself included. No-
1: mm-hmm. Exactly. In the growing list, man, growing list. Yes. So, um, getting on steam, for example, and using it as kind of a preschool uh, a layer is that, it, it, you know, it, it forces the person to take time and attention to learn it themselves directly. And, and by the way, Frank, there, um,
2: Frank, uh, Robert David Steele also lost his keys.
1: Very famous incident of that. Yep. It's going to come up in his lawsuit too, in fact, I'm sure. But Uh yeah, it happened to him. It's it's, like I said, it's a sad little lesson. It has to be learned. And it's not something you can really hold people's hands through the process of. You're, you're, you're giving fire to the peasants. You're giving fire to the, uh, you know, to the humans. This is Promethean tech that we're talking about. And, um, people have been muddled for decades under normal so- circumstances of social networks and email and how to work the internet by always, you know, just remember your email and, and email the, the, the admin and he'll give you your password back or something like that. It's not that world anymore. So it's, it's going to look a little messy for a while. <laughs> That's why I write in science fiction and it's crazy sci-fi because it's not meant to give you always a great, you know, ending to the story. Sometimes people lose a lot of money with the, these new techs. So it's 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 a buyer beware situation. Right. It's not about – like crypto doesn't need a lot of adopters of people that don't know how to use it. Crypto needs just a few adopters of people that are trying to change old systems drastically, and it's working that way. Uh, but if you read the news, the news wants to paint the story only through one kind of plot uh, prism, which is that it, if it's not – if the bankers aren't happy and the people in government aren't happy, then you're not going to get it, the peasants. <laughs> so, um, but despite what they say, you know, Jamie Dimon actually raised the price of Bitcoin quite significantly one one summer just by opening his mouth and talking smack about it. Right. So the op- thats what's great. That's the other great thing about this tech. It really doesn't care what the centralized conglomerates on this planet are doing. It only cares how it was written and it follows its code explicitly. Does that make sense?
2: Oh, yes. And of course, as we move along here to other subjects at hand, Elon Musk also making headlines as well recently with wanting to implant basically a link to the brain with a smartphone. Uh, Basically, he wants to insert a Bluetooth enabled implant into your brain. I'm not sure if Uh any of you read that. It seems like Paul uh, perhaps did. Um, Paul, what's your thoughts and perception of all this?
3: Well, there were stem cell companies that use a similar thing to reactivate areas uh, for people to have function in their body. I saw a video today by Elon Musk talking about that. And um, now I'm a surgical tech. Also, I've uh, worked in hospitals, uh, you know, doing surgery. So his his system seems pretty simple. It's just about a thousand electrodes or more uh, put in a certain area of the brain and small one tenth the size of a human hair. And uh like a two millim- two millimeter incision. Um and then uh this robot connects all the uh you know, sensors, electrodes to the area of the brain and then it closes it up. You know, it looks pretty uh looks pretty uh early in tech. It's not very advanced yet, but um it brings up Questions about um, too many questions, AI, you know AI. You know whether you know many. what kind of thing, what's going to happen down the road? Because I've heard Elon talking about the dangers of AI. You know, it's interesting. It is
2: very interesting, well, and I wonder if that's even safe.
1: Right? If you can't trust your smartphone, and you can't, why would you trust any other kind of tech being put in your body? I mean, that's just it's, I'm baffled uh, like by it. Yeah, and and Paul, you're too.
2: yeah, I'm baffled, my friend. And Paul, you just said Elon Musk was against AI. And reading this article, it seems like he might have had a change of heart.
3: Yeah, he was on Joe, uh, Joe Roken talking about, you know, AI and that it was really coming up as far as I remember. And uh, so just interesting that he's also um, part of this um, tech company doing this new implant.
2: Yeah. You know, the very first person I heard talking about maybe downloading or transferring some sort of a human consciousness into a computer was Michio Kaku. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. we we. It seems it's like we are on too. the horizon uh, for that to actually no, transpire, Frank.
1: I, I was talking to Michio Kaku in 2000 about that, and, and I remember thinking, wow, how, how very sci- sci-fi that is. And very. Sure we are less than 20 years later in the things that he was really talking about. Like Google Glass, for example, I was talking to UTO in 2000 about something very similar to that, that you'd be wearing a piece of tech that would be showing you who you're talking to and probably aspects of their life and how they – and you're like, man, that's not going to happen, not in 100 years. And Yeah, it's <laughs> and insane.
2: You know, 15
1: but 15 years later, it was there. I amazing. just
2: want to quickly ask if, if if either of you know why Google Glass did not take off at all.
1: No. Well, I think it was just, it's it's too much um tech. It's really where they want to go with it. The Google Glass is kind of what's gonna happen when you do have implants eventually. And they'll probably just skip the fact that you even need a, a prosthetic at all, that you'll just have it, you know, coming right into your retinas, um, through something on your on your own eyeball or internally in your brain. You know, or by that time they would have uh uh like traded off this planet to the Draco reptilians, who knows, but the you know people walking around with cell phones is enough. Have you noticed how many people got themselves killed just playing um Pokemon go?
2: No, I remember yeah,
1: yeah, so I mean, I think they were just worried that they would just get the the population too um too screwed up and so, <laughs> so <laughs> it it had to go away for a while, but it'll be back. it'll be back you remember smartphones and pDAs were around in the nineties. And, and even that was a little too soon because the cost of the tech and, and some other, um, uh, things, you know, but, um, now it's just so simple to, to have a smartphone. You know, there's probably it's such a bad community. idea.
2: Uh, the more I hear about this, Frank and Paul, the, the more I think this is, this is such a bad idea.
1: It is. Well, yeah. That's why I keep pushing. <laughs> oh, Lord. I keep pushing for cryptocurrencies because they, they seem to be kind of a, a, a retro. They, they seem to be kind of going back into, uh, uh, back in tech world, yes. Uh, I'll, I'll, let me explain it a little bit better. For example, the Steam blockchain. One of the reasons why I adopted it so so rigorously is that it truly is a blockchain that I can get to work on 1950s technology. I'm not kidding. I could get I could I could work with this blockchain and create things that with just 1950s level tech that would interface well enough with it. So I could do radio on it, I could do TV on it, I could you know um, I could build a network like an Internet of Things type network, but I wouldn't have to make it overly complicated and centralize all the control of it. I could distribute it, decentralize it, and put it in tech that's cooler. And it's probably going to last a lot longer if human beings were, would, would be willing to use the tech for a long time. Now, we've already been through this you know, for a long time. It used to be that you would hand a piece of tech down to the family. I'll give you an example, a, a, a watch. Um, you used to be able to spend a lot of money, get a really nice crafted watch, hold on to it for many decades, and maybe pass it on to your son or daughter, and then they would hold on to it and maybe pass it on. It, would, it was heirloom-quality tech. I still have a, an old watch for my grandfather It was probably 100 years old. That tech never needed any kind of improvement. It's 100 years later, that watch still does what it was designed to do, which is tell time. But in the world of computers and AI and this this overreach of moving into the singularity and trying to get people – caught up with technology, the technology is actually running their lives. They have no idea how to even use it. It's way more tech than they even need just to do the simple things that they should be doing, and they're not even getting the simple things they should get be getting done done because the tech is that te- is is that complicated. So one of the cool things about blockchain is that once you have a blockchain established, you really don't need this exciting level of keep improving and keep improving and give us another update, give us more this, more that. You can really go backwards. So once you have a blockchain, you know it keeps time. Now you can create tech that is almost heirloom quality that will be around for a long time that will interface with that. And I think of that as a super cool science fiction concept that I want to make happen.
2: It's the way of the future. And, Paul, were you saying something there?
1: Yeah. um, Go ahead. The
3: uh, the implant that Elon is talking about is uh, about the size of a penny or a lot, maybe half the size of a penny. Wow. So, yeah, I've been in surgery where they do pain implants, um, like little Uh, Things uh, maybe a quarter the size of your palm, and they implant it just under the skin, about an inch deep. So this is uh, much smaller than even those kind of things, which which are useful in uh, removing pain. Either it's put either in in the back or in the lower right side near the appendix. So these kind of things can be useful. And but what happened to the stem cells? You know, um, a lot of them uh, since the regulation in the United States with the National Institute of Health, it didn't happen. You know, Obama was talking about changing some of the stem cell laws. And what ended up happening was some of these American companies got bought out and by Asian, Southeast Asian companies. So um, the, the stem cell field would have addressed some of the stuff that Elon is talking about uh, using his tech for. So, you know.
1: That's interesting.
2: Yeah. It seems like uh, Munich is a very popular place to go for stem cell therapy. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
1: There's, there's a... I can't afford it,
2: but I, I know that's where a lot of uh, wealthy people go.
1: You should just learn how to make your own. I mean, that's the that's the other trick they've been doing is letting you know people believe that you have to go to these doctors to to, to get miracles done, and, and really the human body is far more potential for human body. If I'm not mistaken, aren't you also an astral traveler?
3: Paul? Yeah, for sure. And I've I've got a bachelor's in uh, holistic wellness. You know.
2: Yeah, Paul's deep, and he also has a book. Uh tell us about your book uh, quickly here, Paul since we might have some first time yeah, listeners. I've
1: been mine. <laughs> this last hour, yeah,
2: tell right? tell Frank about, about your, your um experience sure, with sure. that world.
3: Sure. Um so when I was nineteen I had an a sleep paralysis experience and mm-hmm. I, soon after that on the R radio program, I heard about out-of-body experiences and sleep paralysis. And so over the years I've uh, learned to astral travel and I have a book on Amazon.com called um uh, the Golden One, an an out of body book, and hmm. um, in that I talk about the the astral and the out of body realms, but also and how to learn to do that, but also how to establish establish your life here in the physical world so that you're happy here, and then when you're in your peak states of happiness here on the on, on Earth, you can go in and out of those states and be comforted when you get back too. So it's not a big shift, um, you know. Yeah. When you go out yeah, of body, it's it's, it's 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 good, you know. So yeah, when you get back, not it's a, not
1: it's, a way to escape reality, so to speak. Like, you, right. You, you, you yeah. For me, it was escape do, in yeah. the
3: beginning. So when you get mm-hmm. back, it's really nice. It's even better if you have a good life here. Also, though, so I, mm-hmm. I promote like physical enlightenment, which is great money here and a job and everything here. And then also spiritual enlightenment, both, you know, you can't mm-hmm. have you can have intuition and then you can have intelligence, but you have to balance the two because one is not better than the other. You know, there are different mm-hmm. influences which is which will make you intuit different things. You know, so mm-hmm. you can't just trust your intuition 100%. You have to balance it with it in, in, you know, intelligence.
1: Yeah, we have we have two eyes to see the world. So I look at it that way too. What you just described is like you can't walk through the world if, if you have both eyes with with just one of them open and expect to have a better. Uh, map of the world than if you had both eyes open. So right. uh, balancing the intellect or the reason, um, the mind with the intuition is is uh, very important. So how how um how did you get you got involved simply through your own spontaneous what a hypnagogic state that you were in uh, and and then you learned how to achieve it more on your own or. or
3: yeah, in 1996, in like the spring, um, I woke up with a sleep paralysis, and for about a minute, I couldn't move. I didn't know anything about that kind of stuff, and uh, you know, I was scared. Mm-hmm.
2: Just like I anyone else would be. Like that. <laughs> yeah, that must have mm-hmm. been terrifying, and that's sort of the a common feeling, especially the first time you realize what just happened.
3: Yeah. And if Mm -hmm. people never hear anyone else talk about that, they, you know, they may just keep it to themselves and go through their whole life and not know what happened, you know?
2: Oh yes. mm -hmm. And of course I wanted to shift our attention once again to some very dark matters. Now (laughs) I did want to mention Mr. Jeffrey Epstein, uh, Mm -hmm. a a person I've been talking about since uh, 2014 for such Mm -hmm. a long time. I've been mentioning the guy's name and, It seems like that day that I've been waiting for has finally arrived.
1: He's getting famous. He's getting famous, isn't he?
2: He is. And I'm glad that there's a lot more attention being drawn uh, to one Jeffrey Epstein. And of course, in the news, two more accusers have come forward about Jeffrey Epstein. And of course, Mm -hmm. his bail was also denied for those who are following along with this whole Mm -hmm. uh, story here. And very, very interesting. One of the women... Who was a victim? Apparently, she kind of looks
1: like Megan McCain. Mm, yeah, mm. I think I know which one you're talking about. Yeah. I'm
2: forgetting the the lady's name right now. It's 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 a it's, uh, goddamn escaping me
1: right now. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm sure none uh, of them want the notoriety, but there, but there are pictures out there. You can look this up. And, uh, and, and I it came to my up.
2: mind. It came to my mind. Yeah. Her name is Virginia Roberts. There we go. That's it. And looks like a a, a slimmer version of Megan
1: McCain. It's very interesting I that, that, she, that
2: too. she looks exactly like her.
1: Yeah. Well, one. What do you think? So, what do we know about the 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 Epstein um, plot? I, I think of it as a there's a plot. What what is he? What's what's behind Epstein? Uh, That's what I'm I wondering. Think it, I, I think there's a an actual plot to get people in power in interesting predicaments for the sake of blackmail and control. And he is the supposed not ring uh, ringleader. He supposedly is the ringleader, but he's really probably not. He's I'm probably not sure. He's handler. Yeah. See, that's know?
2: the thing. I'm not sure if he's the main culprit here. I'm not sure if mm-hmm. he's the main ringleader. I think there might even be someone above him. And it mm-hmm. seems like from what we've been gathering on the news is that he was some sort of intelligence a- uh, agent. Yeah. They call him assets. Correct. Right? Correct. Yeah. Uh, Paul, have you been following along with this?
3: Just briefly, I know like airplane and young woman and uh, famous people, you know, in an island.
2: You just yeah. know it's bad. <laughs> yeah.
3: And you yeah, know enough because
1: that's, that's pretty much the elements right that's there. That's pretty
2: much, cause... yeah. And It's so crazy, though. You definitely don't, especially if you're like a politician, you don't want to be seen uh, leaving like a motel room with a, a small boy or a small girl.
1: Yeah, this island is a is a place where that's been probably going on for for quite a long time. I'm not sure. And I think that's well. You know, he has a ranch out here in New Mexico too that's being um, that's being raided as we speak. So besides the island, he's got a lot of other properties. There was one in New York, and I think one in Florida. One in New York, um, yes. I think, and then uh, wasn't he also a member of the Mar-a-Lago um, club there in Florida? Right. And there were some. I think this is where it all started. There was a particular uh, all of these people working at Mar-a-Lago.
2: All of these people are connected. It's it's the most disgusting thing ever.
1: Well, what was it? It was that George Carlin that says it's a big club and you ain't in it. It's actually That's a true. small, small club that we're not in. <laughs> it's not a very big club. I'm
2: glad not we're not in it. I'm very glad too. we're not in that club. It seems like yeah. it's um not a positive sort of light, and we've had President Trump and uh, Bill Clinton. Two big names that have been linked
1: to Mr. Jeffrey Epstein. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Bill Clinton and, and uh, his wife been spotted on a flight logs. Yeah, that's not to that good. particular island many times, like many times. So it's interesting. So I think you know a guy, right? <laughs> well, you know, Bill, I could see that happening. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I happen to feel like this is the time that we've been really waiting for two years ago. Uh, I, I saw a lot of this stuff coming out, but I think there was kind of a crust of a wave that crushed it. And we got caught up in the Mueller probe. And uh, you this
2: know, is uh, much yeah. bigger than that.
1: Yeah, it is. And it's there's really nothing that's going to get in the way of it other than storming Area 51 for the press. Attention. Oh, my. What do you think of that? Yeah, like, isn't that interesting time?
2: <laughs> Paul, Have you have you heard about that, by the way?
3: Yeah, I've seen it on Twitter. Yeah, sure.
2: Yeah, what's your take on that before we get back into uh, these darker issues here?
3: Well, some of the uh it's important when someone says the government, you know, the government isn't actually just a one unit. You know, businesses are made up of many different entities and it's said that the government is made up of many different like corporations or powers, many different powers within within the, U- the U.S. government. So it's not like the United States government. There are many different corporations that make that up. So, um, you know, even the, the military is maybe a branch of, you know, I'm not saying um, I'm not saying it's a one unit. It's not like what we the people think of it as. It's many different power struggles. You know?
2: Yes. And of course, this all started off as a joke on Facebook and now it's yeah. turned into a whole event
1: and many more right, people well, find that much more entertaining than than the uh, report to the guy who's been caught and is now being tried you know it's like i think of it as a, a big a distraction, distraction. It's fun yeah it's fun but it's interesting timing that this is coming up right now and being promoted all over facebook like it's being
2: it's all over the news still
1: mm-hmm. yeah it's a big thing
2: yeah the the guy from bakersfield i believe who's responsible for the event um he's telling people not to go yeah
3: yeah. Well, but, the military but, is the military, you know, you don't mess with the military and, uh,
2: we gotta be an idiot. Listen. Yeah. You gotta be yeah, an idiot to mess with the military.
3: It's top secret, man. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, if you listen to Carrie Cassidy or weird. some of the some of the other speakers, you know, and they talk about what happens at some of those places, you know, area 51, it's, uh, mm-hmm. gotta be careful.
1: Mm-hmm. My stories go back to the nineties. I've been following this stuff since, uh, I think his, his name was, uh, Bill Campbell, um, was mm-hmm. doing a lot. It was Campbell and he had, uh, um, a, a lot of the books on it and had, had gone and seen it uh, plenty of times. Somebody was just up on that Freedom Ridge or something and taking video and, and showing off uh, something that was taking off from there. That got up on YouTube. Is there, People go there all the time, is, take is, pictures is, of them getting chased off.
2: Oh, Frank, is, is there a current live stream right now on Facebook of Area 51?
1: I don't think there's a current one, like a live 24, uh, something like that. I thought but, there was. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me.
2: I could have sworn yeah. I saw something like that recently. I'm not
1: sure if it I've was come...
2: actually live or just footage.
1: Yeah, I've come across things like that. So, like I said, it wouldn't surprise me. But yeah, yeah. I think it's neat that they're turning this into a big space happen uh yeah with a lot of folks getting out there but i still want to keep my eye on the epstein trial because i think that's what it's distracting from and that is far more important than whether they're going to let you into the top secret air base over in nellis you know the nellis airfield um but uh uh, you know, Epstein is probably another one of those guys that doesn't like cryptocurrency either. He's supposedly a billionaire, although he really didn't do anything to to get it, from what I understand. It's kind of a exclusive club, if you know.
2: Yeah, this guy was people. definitely blackmailing all sorts of individuals out there.
1: hmm And I think he's going to roll over on people, and he may not have a, a very long life for for long, even under custody. Who knows? He's going to uh, drop dimes.
2: He's definitely going to drop dimes. I don't think he has much There's of a choice. To do
1: it. Yeah, it's the time to do it. And and uh, the the story I've heard is, look, it doesn't matter what he does at this point. They already got enough to put him under the jail for the rest of his life. So even if he does turn dimes, it's like, so what? We already knew that. We're going after them next, and then we're going to see who falls next. And I think it's probably going to be closer to those folks that – you know, uh, run with the the Clintons, if not the Clintons themselves. So this has been a long time coming. I think we've been kind of expecting a a bigger fight between the old um, Clintonistas and this Trump movement that that seemed to came out of nowhere uh, in 2016, if you remember. Oh, yes, it doesn't you know there's there's still a lot of speculation as to whether they're all playing for the same team or whether it's all big one you know giant um you know control op or whatever but uh it's it's entertaining for the for
0: well they've
2: all donated websites. money to each other. We know that much
1: lots and lots of it and how- and houses and apparently children too, so you know, that's gonna come out now.
2: This is Let's insane
1: see. though, and
2: I think there's even a photograph of Jeffrey Epstein and an underage Miley Cyrus.
1: I believe so, mhm. That's
2: a legit photo, right?
1: Yeah, and she's not a very legit person. She's a very odd and off-the-wall and kind of insane person, too. Yes. Wouldn't you say? Hollywood has some some strange characters.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's just mind-boggling that all this has been going on. The royal family also connected to pedophile Jeffrey Epstein.
1: Well, and it started because of, uh, uh, who, what was his name that was so, so famously, uh, connected with the royal family there who had passed away, um, Jimmy Savile. So, you know, the, the Brits had their own version of the, of the Honey Potter, um, you know, the, the guy that they always took folks out for the parties and got some of the dirtiest stuff on them, Jimmy Savile. And now we've oh, got, goodness. uh, Mr. Epstein. So
2: I want to know if Epstein. there was any videos recovered over
1: at mm-hmm. the property of Epstein. Won't well, we know here pretty soon, but you know, don't you think that's going to start coming up in the, in I the think case? so. Once, once this evidence starts coming out, it's going to drive the autistics nuts. It's going to drop. This yeah. is,
2: yeah, it's going to be incredible once all the information comes out and, uh, oh. you know, going back to some of the crazy stuff that uh, Jeffrey Epstein convicted pedophile, uh, his involvement with uh, girls as young as 13, even probably mm-hmm. even younger.
1: And putting him on flights and taking him to islands so And
2: can you even believe that this guy got away with it for so long?
1: Well, I can under the under the the, the terms and conditions that were so forth. It was if I'm not mistaken wasn't that pre-2012 at first?
2: I think it was uh, back in 2007 maybe?
1: Yeah, yeah. And so for my timeline, you know, speaking along the same type of story that, that Paul told us about, you know, his his out of body in 96. Right. I had things that were going on with me in in 2008 that led up to 2012 and then Enough of an event or, 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 or an unveiling happened to me in 2012 that, that gave me some insight and some things were coming. So for example, I knew in 2012 that Donald Trump was going to be president. Not that I walked around telling everybody that. Sure. I just kind of, you know, knew that something of that nature was, was taking place. And then I also knew, um, you know, at 2012 was when I was really, really introduced to cryptocurrency. And since then, any of the technologies in cryptocurrency space that came after 2012, which includes the the blockchain um, steam, uh, became kind of the, the the focal point for my work. So Bitcoin Bitcoin came out as a as a paper was published in 2008. As a working blockchain, it started walking like a toddler in 2009. So it's like a 10 year old. And it has a, it has a program that's going to carry it a hundred years in the future. In other words, you, you download the, the Bitcoin protocol, you put it on a computer, you sync it up with the, 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 the network across the world. And it's part of this, this, uh, virtual machine that's going to be running until probably 20, uh, 2140. And still mining and putting out coins. So it's, it's, it's this, uh, um, juggernaut. It's not, it's not designed with an off switch. And, and after 2012, um, the big veil that I had struggled with most of my life that was removed showed me that a lot of these things that would go certain ways based on how we've kind of been conditioned or cultured for our, you know, just in general being part of the Western society or something, it wasn't going to go that way anymore. And that would mean that things like, you know, the, the Trump, uh, phenomena was was going to happen, and uh, Bitcoin was going to get more popular, and all these things were going to start happening. So it, I, I almost see this like the world ripping itself apart, trying to change. You know, one group is taking it in one direction, still with the foot firmly on the accelerator, and the brakes are gone. They're trying to run this bus off a bridge or something. And then there's a breakaway going on, and this breakaway is is trying to adapt to these new uh, new ways of uh, of dealing with with problems. So the blockchain is really instrumental into keeping the world, uh, intact, especially, for example, with a massive change in monetary policy all over the planet. Because like Paul was saying, you know, we're stuck on fiat right now that they, they just print money out of thin air. And so based on the value of the dollar, we, we think that Bitcoin is worth something. It shouldn't be worth something based on the value of the dollar because the value of the dollar is an absolutely extraneous, pumped up, fiat driven um, uh, value. It, it, it's just by decree. Don't just use cryptocurrency.
2: Right. You are supporting uh, human
0: trafficking mm-hmm.
1: and right. terrorism and war and you know taxation and theft all over the world because you're you're <laughs> we didn't know, we didn't know any better. There wasn't any other way. And people, you know, strange hippies since the '60s have been saying, "Man, just barter, just trade." And there was never really any good way of doing that because you can't like you know, really break it down. So now cryptocurrencies have given part of the expression to peasants the ability to do exactly what they should be doing, which is peer to peer and bartering and, and different forms of commerce and trade amongst themselves without running to their constabularies or their constables or their, their governments or anything and, and looking for permission. Yes. Um
2: definitely yeah. and going back to Jeffrey Epstein again here. It seems like his day is finally coming, and of course Hollywood also deeply involved with all this going on. As and the, of course, you know more about this than I do, Frank uh, Isaac Cappy. I definitely wanted you to share some of your insight with us about this individual.
1: Yeah, well, there's a good there's a good news article, uh, a decent news article written on altnews.com, dot com. If you look it up, and it's a three part. I think all three parts are out now. It gives a good overall. Um, uh, uh, setting up of the story, but he came on the scene in 2018. He was this uh, character actor out of Hollywood, Isaac Cappy, not really well, really well known. He didn't have any of his own stuff to carry him. He'd just pop up at, in movies. Here I saw
2: everything. his um couple of his live streams, by the way.
1: Mm-hmm. Very and he started wild. doing a, a live streams and talking on Twitter about having friends that were admitting to pedophilia, and he had you know met some people at parties that seemed really. Kind of not on the up and up to him, you know, people trying to get him into a sort of Epstein-style honey trap. Right. Like, hey, why don't you come to this party and, you know, that kind of stuff. So he was—he was very outspoken. He was trying to be a whistleblower. At least that's what it looked like. But then the nature of the internet and the nature of conspiracy in general, and where the, the group mind is at right now, is just such heightened states of paranoia it kinda of ripped this guy apart. I mean, he had a lot of trouble going and getting on little talk shows here and there. He did show up on the Alex Jones show trying to tell his story a little bit more. And then not too long ago, in fact just uh, in May a few a few months back, he um reportedly threw himself off an overpass and was hit by a car and is is dead. Now, um according to his family, you know, that's the way they see it. They want to bury the past and move on. But the internet is keeping him alive like a martyr and thinking that he might be, you know, in witness protection or, or might have faked his death somehow or, or the whole thing is a big fake. That's another thing is the whole thing is a big fake. Uh, but I happen to believe he was a, he was a genuine spirit and he, he saw stuff and was trying to come to the forefront and, uh, uh, got himself killed by the, by the very people he's really trying to out and, um, so his his story is not done by any stretch of the imagination. There's more to the story that's going to be coming. It's just right now it it appears to be a a at, a, at a, a boiling point with where it could go because um people uh, you know don't want to let go of of his memory.
2: He looked extra and, well, troubled by the way. Uh during one of his last streams that I did watch, he even said that it would be painful uh, what would mm-hmm. come.
1: Yeah, you're talking about his his famous uh, live stream that was on a Sunday before the following Tuesday, I think, was the day he he was uh, uh, dead. And um, he had alluded to making a bad choice and picking some of the wrong allies. And uh, that was after a trip that he had made into um, uh, um, Australia. He went off to Australia for a little bit and hung out with quite a few people, one of which is a famous uh, whistleblower named Fiona Barnett, and Fiona Barnett... uh, at him for a few days where they had done a couple of live streams and tons of things. But then he moved into this uh, other camp of, of um, Ruthers or whatever, um, a rap star named Elijah Priest, and uh, and got mixed up with some of the things that they were doing, like they were going to do a, a, a song together or a rap song or something. And then by the time he made it back to the United States, one of the, one of the last little periscopes that you saw yeah. was him admitting to making a... Horrible, horrible mistake. Trusting the wrong people. Feeling like he was the Judas. Yeah, what uh, was? Goat. And
2: I was wondering what exactly what what he was uh, talking about. They were referring to rather.
1: Well, there's a, uh, I would say, an underground portion of the internet of people that have have become uh, rather well known, being prophetic, um, offering up prophecies. There, there's been uh, a lot of prophecies. It, it, like for example, Epstein was a prophecy. If you read Q, he was kind of prophetic pro- poster um if you know anything about that it's a totally different subject but uh that's essentially the nature of where his story came from is that some of these internet prophets have been talking about a, a, a sort of a Judas goat situation um or a um a a traitor in the midst and, and you've been uh, following
2: and you've been following along with the whole QAnon thing
1: correct uh-huh the the, the point of the sci-fi was to to latch on to this phenomena that's going on at, at this point which is um I think I think of it as like a grand awakening. I'd love to get uh, Paul's input on this at this point. Yeah, I'm wondering body.
2: Right, I'm wondering what Paul thinks about the whole QAnon thing. Uh personally speaking, I, I don't have much of a, an opinion on it. I've heard all sorts of conflicting stories over the past uh year or so. Uh Paul, what's your take?
3: Yeah, so back to the thought that there are many different powers in the United States. Likewise, in the world, there are many different families and powerful force, you know, families and forces that are vying for even more power. So it's about power. And um, let me think. if you look at the the, the mind uh, with the with like the metaphysical perspective on some of this is that the the mind isn't the ultimate. You can go beyond the mind and exist in those states because I've been there. Um, so mm-hmm. you can kind of click off the mind and in a holistic sense with the Jeffrey Epstein stuff. Um, Those people are maybe focusing more into the etheric energy, which is the energy of the cells, which can easily be regenerated by eating some some raw food. And they're focusing on the astral, which are very lower, you know, it's it's even lower than the mental energy. So, those people are just learning how to be in their own energy. And um, if, if they want more help, they should check out my book and some of my videos <laughs> because um, mm-hmm. it's very important for them to move beyond those levels, the, the etheric energy and the astral energy, and move even beyond the mental energy and get into the, the oneness and the spiritual energy.
2: Yeah, for sure. Because and
3: Oh, go that ahead, Paul. Energy, that energy will rejuvenate them when they listen to some music or something that'll get them in that state. They'll get even more rejuvenated than anything else that they do.
2: Yes. And Paul, I was just going to quickly add here, are, are you religious by any chance?
3: I'm spiritual. I, I accept all religions and beliefs in, in that sense that there is a there is a force or a being
1: that, uh, that we're all a part of.
2: I'm with you on that one. I uh, acknowledge all the gods out there. You never know which one is correct.
1: You never know which one's hanging out with you. Right?
2: Exactly. So I keep God and Jesus in my back pocket. You never know.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. i try to, to be very spiritual too. That this is my, uh, you know, my take on it is I saw seeing these things coming after 2012 that this unveiling was going on, and mm-hmm. I had some predictions. And rather than trying to, while juggling a very serious uh, uh, life change that was going on, a very uh, uh, something that took a lot of time and attention, I couldn't put into you know trying to impress other people i was really caught up with just trying to you know correct something that was going on with me and survive but i you know had plenty of time to kind of reflect on these new changes that i saw coming post 2012 and one of them was the nature of how the intelligence communities kind of create um the, uh, you're familiar with the term mockingbird media correct
3: uh, corporate media, I'm not familiar with that term that you mentioned.
1: You know. Well, mocking, mockingbird media references the CIA's program of Project Mockingbird to infiltrate the American, um, press.
2: Operation, uh, mockingbird, by the way.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So we call it the mockingbird media. Essentially CNN is, is a perfect example of that. They're, they're not the press. They're, they're, uh, kind of the Stasi para, uh, um, para, uh, propaganda wing of whoever's pulling their, pulling their, uh, strings. So um, the, after the 2012 events, I, I saw that the nature of the Mockingbird program changing, and it would go into these forms of like anonymous um, drops, anonymous. Uh, it, it, since since 2012, we've seen like the FBI anon group. There was a, a very famous uh, messaging board called 4chan that started getting famous because it was leaking out these messages from a a, a poster named FBI anon, and uh, and that turned into some other ones, but. QAnon came along in twenty seventeen. Twenty seventeen was when uh, the QAnon phenomena started. And it, it was bigger than all the ones previous. It is the biggest, most impressive, um central kind of uh control of a of a of a of of news dropping. Is QAnon you know. a psyop? I would you know, I don't like to use these the, the new Words like the vernacular or, 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 uh, just, you know, LARP or, Understood. PSYOP or things like that, right? Right. But it is a way for whoever controls it to control narratives. I see. So it's, it's, it it's definitely used as a psyop. I mean, it is, it is in every way what you would think is a psyop. It will kind of. Be the defining um, thing that, that uh, explains what psyops are. I think when it when, if it finally ever gets exposed completely, but it probably never will get exposed uh, completely uh, it, it, because you have to have so many people go along with it, and, and so many people on this planet can't even agree as to whether the, the world is flat or round. Oh you know what I mean? <laughs> so <laughs> don't don't expect it to go away. Oh but my. while it's while it's here, what it's been doing is it's been dropping information that seems to suggest that there is a civil war going on inside of the American intelligence community. You know, so that's what a, that's what we
2: talked in private about. You predicted a sort of civil war uh, taking place in 2020.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You really yeah, believe that? If, well, I think we're kind of already in it. I mean, if you really, if you just look at this Q phenomena, for example, the Q phenomena is all you'd need to to, to establish. Like for for those that want to believe it, I, I have plenty of friends that 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 love it, watch it, read it every day, look for all the videos that come out. They're very entertained by it, um, and it does tell a story that sounds like, hey, the good guys are in charge now and everything's going back to normal. But for those who've been kind of, you know, in the paranoia and, and the conspiracy world for a long time, they uh, you know, even that's enough to start conspiracy because it can't just be going the right way. There's, there's uh, what they call, um, you know, co-opting something, like taking something over so that you know you control it. And, uh, take it in a different direction. So it's, it's, a lot of people feel like that's, it's propagating hope, hope porn, if you will. Right. And making people feel kind of sedated by letting them feel like, Hey, everything's under control. Don't worry. Don't, you know, don't, don't do anything rash. We got it under control. And if, if we sat around doing that, we probably wouldn't get Jeffrey Epstein back in into, into the hot seat. Right. So what's cool about the, the, the Q thing is that it really hasn't stopped anything. It, it actually is going in that direction. So if it is a psyop that was meant to keep the the muggles or the the citizens under control, the muggles, yeah, um, it's doing it, and it, it it appears to be doing it in a way as if it were a weapon that was directed back at the intelligence community. So it might, it, it to an outside observer, it almost looks like intelligence communities are in fact at war with one another.
2: And you know what? And uh, my goodness, uh, you know, as soon as you said that, it reminded me of. Uh, Local police, uh, actually out here, local police use of drones will be Mm. taking place out here in El Centro. Uh, That's another story I forgot to to mention out there to all of you out there. Uh, Just a couple days ago, a pair of local law enforcement agencies are in the process of implementing plans to use unmanned aerial vehicles, commonly known as drones, as we all know them as, my friends. And two agencies that include the El Centro Police Department and the Imperial County Sheriff's Office, which is where I'm at, my friends. And I was curious to know Imperial if that's what if that's what's going on out there uh, in your area, uh, Frank. Since you're out there in New Mexico, nothing I have like
1: yet that. I've to see a drone, but I've I've, I've caught plenty of um, you know things like stingray sites and. Um, you know, the the automated not automated, but the unmanned unmanned things, you know, where they put cameras up or they'll drive a, a car or something. This is
2: the way that. of the future, my friend. Police state at it its is. finest.
1: Oh, it's it's going to be here because it's it it has to. You have to be using drones. It's much much safer than you know sending human beings to go out and and check something. You know, I agree you, with you on that one. Yes. But I would like to be the one that owns the drones, and so that's another <laughs> reason why I think blockchain is so important. Because as you decentralize, you get into the Internet of Things, and what we've already shown that blockchain can do in ways it can it can distribute like the ownership. It can di- distribute. You know, rather than putting it in the hands of your of your police department, there could be independent drone services out there that could be used for those.
2: And, Paul, have you – sorry to cut you off there, but, Paul, have you mm-hmm. seen anything like that out there in your area?
3: Well, when I was in Arizona, um, I, down near the border, I've seen the drones out there, you know, over the mountains looking for anyone who might be going, you know, sure. from Mexico up. Yeah. yeah. I believe they're important. They're useful. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes. Yeah. Uh, very useful very yeah, they're not going away definitely. My whole thing is how advanced will these uh drones get? We already know they have infrared and all sorts of different things, but eventually, with this new wi fi uh code that they have now m i t was designing this sort of uh wi fi that could see through walls, and
1: you're talking about five g it's very five g stuff
2: very interesting stuff. And it's making me wonder if this is just another step towards all of that. Mm-hmm.
3: I've seen uh, synchronized drones too, and then also drones that have like a bullet in it, and if they they'll they'll hit you, you know, to kill somebody. That's pretty dangerous, you know, where that's going.
2: That's what I'm thinking. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking where is this heading towards? Uh, we already know they have all sorts of methods to break up riots and, and crowds and all sorts of things, but eventually they will. If, well they already have they already weaponized these drones so how long is it going to take before they start using it on regular citizens that aren't oh, not long. rioting
1: not long yeah, not long i mean they just just you know anything that they can hand over to uh, um <laughs> the enforcers to use against uh, against their their fellow citizens it's going to get used i mean we already have like tanks in police departments and you know um Weapon systems that were designed passively or what they call non-kill, but can can be really, really uh, detrimental. So they've already been doing this. Yeah, it's they do. More, yeah, more stuff that's going to come out. Definitely.
2: You know? The LAPD, like I always mention here on the program, the LRAD system that they made very, yeah, very LRAD, famous. Exactly, yeah. The long-range the long acoustic device, indeed. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, I'm telling you, that can really mess you up. If you've never personally heard that sort of noise by one of those uh, sound cannons, as they're referred to quite commonly, I've actually been around one of these uh, things before, and they set it off, and I definitely felt nauseated after. Yeah,
1: yeah. And they said that the go,
3: damp- go ahead. You know, it was said that Angela Merkel may have been hit by an energy weapon, and that's maybe why she was trembling in the last oh, wow. couple of weeks.
1: Interesting. Yeah. Well, and that you brought up Cappy and one of the, the theories that you know why Cappy would run himself or jump off a bridge, or as they, you know, as the report says, threw himself from a bridge, is that he might have been hit with a, uh, a version of that technology, which is called voice to skull, a V2K, where it's at a lower frequency, same type of same type of technique though, you're driving the person crazy from inside um, with with noise, but only noise that they can hear, or or even voices. In fact. Um, there is a witness to Cappy or with Cappy that actually admitted to having a type of voice to skull situation happen in the car. And now, uh, you know, I'm a sci fi writer, so don't make a, a personal case out of this. I'm not trying to say that I know the exact truth of what happened, but it does sound like an interesting story, especially when you think about this person who, who yeah, who uh, invariably killed themselves. But the, the story went that. Uh, this person was driving him in the car, and he he was acting like there was always something agitating him. And as they round the corner, this the sound of this music came through the the speaker system, and the radio wasn't even on. And it was a very clear; you could hear this music super super clear for a couple of seconds as she made the turn, and then it went away. And they both looked at each other, and she says, or he had said to her, like, "Hey, you, you did you hear that?" Or she said, "Yeah, what was it? So I've been hearing that all along, or something." So there's some. News out there that would suggest that if you believe it, that Cappy might have been, uh, in fact, driven to uh, right. by this type of technology. Like
2: a mind control. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. yeah, you like know, a, uh, M- MK Ultra. Yeah, like MKUltra.
2: Yeah, and I was just mm-hmm. going to go back and quickly mention the whole Wi-Fi being able to see through walls. It's actually called Wi-Fi, and it's a new technology yeah. that enables seeing through walls using Wi-Fi signals. And that allows to track moving humans through walls and behind closed doors. And this is something that is so major and it's not being talked about at all.
1: Not much. It is being talked about, though. I will say that, and people do know about this. Very this, little, though. A lot of, yeah, but, yeah. I mm. one of the one of the lucky things that happened to me while I was going through my troubles, um, you know, my my life changing troubles, was I became extremely sensitive to um, Wi Fi. Unfortunately, all of our computers and cell phones and everything work off of it, so it didn't make me very productive. If I could, you know, sit down on a computer for a couple minutes, and then I would just get uh, ridiculously nauseous to the point of like losing another day or two. <laughs> wow. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't do this kind of stuff. But people have been reporting this for a long time, and now there's this big push to get us into 5G, which is even a more nefarious form of, of Wi-Fi, where you know they can already kind of see through the walls, and they can. uh, When I say they, I'm like anybody that, like an, an agency that wanted to. I'll say an agency that wanted to would have the the it means, means. To be able to take your, yeah, your own so. technology and turn it against you. And uh, I think we see more and more of that stuff. A lot of this, for me, started back in 2012 with Michael Hastings. Do you remember that story?
2: Very, very vaguely I do. You you did tell me something about that in private.
1: Yeah, it wasn't a, it, 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 that it was a, one of these techniques of driving people crazy, but he yeah. was driving his car in, in, down L.A. Uh, in the middle of the night, and it, his car just blows up. Now, the story goes that he was just driving fast and ran into a tree, and it was a, it was one of these brand-new Mercedes that can be – um, really, they've proven it at DEFCON, uh, DEFCON or hacker conferences, that you can go in and hack into a car and, and take control of it. One of the thoughts was that he was in his car, the doors locked, the steering wheel takes control of itself, the accelerator hits the floor, and it sends him into a tree. Well, even that wasn't enough to cause the level of destruction that everybody saw. In fact, I have a personal friend that was in L.A. a block or two away when they heard the explosion. And her uh, uh, testimony to me was this was this was ordinance that you you, you know that if, especially if you've gone through training or heard ordinance go off that it was a bomb that this this thing was blown smithereens. Uh, in fact, if you look at the uh, the footage from the, the car wreck, the uh, transmission was 150 feet blown the other direction. So a car doesn't run even if it was going very very fast, like 100 miles an hour, it doesn't run into a a, a tree. You know, Not like that. LA has some of these some of these uh, pine trees, not pine trees, but uh palm trees. Right. A hundred mile an hour car going right into a palm tree wouldn't blow up and send the transmission flying 150 feet back the other direction, you know, five, 600 pound transmission block.
2: Frank, let me so, quickly ask you, do you think that might've happened to Princess Diana?
1: Well, that's what a lot of people have reported there too, that there might've been a squib or something that took the tire out and, and then they, you know, just kind of pushed the car into a, into a uh, pylon or something. But uh yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think that her her uh, accident was an accident. I think that was a, a pr- pretty clearly a, a hit. And Michael Hastings in, in 2012 was very clearly uh, a hit. I, I believe my friend from L.A. who said that the pop or the loud explosion that they heard was a like ordinance going off, which sounds entirely different. You know what I mean? Like it, it, even taking it to the Boston bombing, the Boston bombing was not. It was caught on camera. It was definitely not a, a piece of ordinance. It was a, a. It looked like a piece of pyrotechnic. Yes. Um, so there, and it, then go into. Uh, uh, Vegas, in the Vegas where people were listening to the guns that were going off. If you listen to the way those guns are, are – are, 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 listen to the sound of those guns, and then they go into a hotel room and say, hey, this is where it was done, those guns don't match up with the sounds of what was being fired out in L.A. And and this happens over and over and over again where the story just does not match anything about it, and then you have people that have their hands on tech that can be used to do all kinds of things now. So we really are kind of in a in a 1984 Uh, world where the powers that be can do whatever they want man i mean it's great to have epstein on trial now because at least if you can start with the bloody fact that they've been diddling kids of the the, the highest places in power and they have we might we might be able to start getting some justice for all these other things that have been going on like people that have been blown up in the middle of la like just blown to pieces
2: yes and Um, frank we are winding down here a bit and I just wanted to quickly say, is there anything you'd like to plug before we get rolling along here?
1: You know, I had a couple – I appreciate you asking. I'm so sorry to take so much of it's the okay. time on this show. But, Paul, you've been fantastic um, uh, to talk with, and I want to thank you for your time. Yeah, it's um, been interesting.
3: I, Frank, thank you, yeah. too. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I had a couple of friends that popped into your into your chat. There was a there was a uh, the OCU and a, a gentleman by the name of Grim Grizz, and, and those are the folks that I I kind of uh, stay connected to online. But if you want to follow me in my work, it's on Steam. It's on the Steam blockchain. Um, I'm ditching email and I'm ditching you know uh, YouTube and all these other uh, networks out there. But you still have my number, my friends, so you can always call Michael. I love your show. Of course, always have. And please keep it up because this is always um, a, a great time. Yes, Frank. Thank you for your
2: – All right, Frank. I'm going to let you go now, and I'll talk to you again very soon, my friend.
1: Absolutely. Take care, guys. Thanks right. for having me, Michael. Good night, Take, care. Frank, Take care. Take care,
2: And there goes Mr. Frank Bacon. And Paul, I do want to thank you so much for – uh, being here as well, I had a great time talking to you about cryptocurrencies, and as well as talking about all these other things in the tech world, and of course, our friend Jeffrey Epstein.
3: Yeah, it's been great. Um wanted to let people know about the real estate I yeah, mentioned at the beginning. Yeah, Do your thing. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so um, auction.com is a website, A-U-C-T-I-O-N, auction.com. You can get a house for less than $10,000 there. It only costs. Uh, you can, you know, you can. It takes about three months to do. Bank owned for two years, and then they sell it at a bid. And I've done it twice, and I've profited five thousand on each house. So yeah, my my second house I bought for thirty five hundred dollars. And if you'd like to learn more, you can uh, check me out on Twitter or uh, at the com and go to the chat area, and you can find all my links for Discord, the YouTube, and also on Twitter, and we can talk more about the real estate.
2: Incredible. Well, thank you so much for being a part of the program yet again, Paul. And I'll talk to you again on the other side, my friend.
3: Awesome. Michael, good night. Um, right, Paul. Thank you for having me tonight. Thank
2: nope, you. no doubt. Take care and good night. Be safe. And there he goes, ladies and gentlemen, that was Prince Paul Mamakos. Great guy, great guest. And of course, it is now time to go on a very short break here. And when I return, our second guest is ready, uh, Mr. John Kachuba. He is ready to roll. Let's get things going here. Don't go anywhere. Stay tuned. To the program, boys and girls. Good to see so many of you out there still. Amazing. And we are joined by our second guest now, John Kachuba. John is an award winning author of 12 books. John holds advanced degrees in creative writing and teaches in Ohio. He is a member of the Historical Novel Society and the Horror Writers Association. John frequently speaks on paranormal and metaphysical topics and, of course, is a regular speaker at universities and libraries' paranormal conferences. You probably heard him on the radio or on TV. He makes his return here tonight. Give him a warm round of applause, boys and girls. Let's bring him in. John, are you alive out there?
0: I'm alive out here.
2: (laughs) I can't believe you're here, John.
0: (laughs) Well, it's good to be here.
2: It's been nearly four years.
0: Yep, no doubt.
2: Wow. Where where has the time gone?
0: (laughs) I don't know. Where does the time go? I'd like to figure that out myself.
2: That is insane. I can't believe it's been four years since the last time we've talked. And, you know, I even used a sample of your voice from the previous show we did uh, together in the intro, the infamous, it's only the paranormal Michael. And that's what you said in that sound drop, my friend. (laughs)
0: <laughs> okay.
2: That's incredible.
0: So I, hopefully I sound the same. You sound Maybe great.
2: You okay. sound great, my friend. It's it's such an honor to finally have you back on. You are a great writer, and I'm not just saying that because I'm talking to you now. I actually have genuinely enjoyed your writing, John.
0: Well, I appreciate that. Um I that's it's it's meaningful to me to to do that and you know you often as a writer don't hear you don't hear how your work is being received. You know, the book is out there. You just hope it's being received well, but you don't often hear from people. So I take any comments very uh, willingly.
2: (laughs) No doubt. Uh, So do I. So do I. Anytime someone says something nice, I I, I go really crazy about it. (laughs) It, It's very flattering. So, John, definitely tell us about yourself and what you've been doing since uh, 2014, 2015.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, let's see. Uh, Since 2015, I mean, I guess when I first came on your show, I had, I guess at that point, I probably had maybe three or four of my ghost books probably already in print at that point and doing pretty well. And those were all books about investigations that I had done with various groups and solo in a lot of haunted locations, not just in my home state of Ohio, but in different areas of the country, and in fact, even some internationally. But then there were a few books that came after that, that I sort of branched off a little bit. Um, I did a historical novel, fiction, a historical novel that had nothing to do with the paranormal, but was about 17th century New England, um, where I grew up. Not in the 17th century, but in New England. Right. Um, what else? There was a paranormal novel that came out just last year called Dark Entry. And this is based on an actual location in Connecticut. Uh, I just fictionalized it and blew up some of the events a little bit. But the basic facts are are sort of what are known to have happened in that area. So that's out there. And then, you know, other things like that. Um done a lot of traveling. In the last two years, I've been in 13 different countries, uh, mostly doing research, uh, primarily for this book, Shapeshifters, that we'll be talking about tonight. Oh, yeah. So so a lot of, a lot of things have happened. Um, and I've sort of branched out, I think, a little bit from just the simple idea of, ghosts and what they're about to a much broader investigation into sort of the paranormal metaphysical world as it is.
2: Oh, yes. And of course, I'm curious to know if you've encountered anything in the realm of the paranormal since the last time we talked.
0: Um, well, i try to think. I mean, I know we talked about some of the uh, incidents that I had when I was doing some ghost hunting. I'm not sure if uh, they're ones that we've heard before, but I do remember one that I thought was pretty dramatic. I was in a house in Brooksville, Florida. It was an old Victorian, and it is now the Hernando County uh, Historical Society. So it's an old Victorian home loaded with a lot of Victorian furniture. And it used to be the home of a doctor. It's called the May Springer House. And uh, the doctor lived there and, of course, saw his patients there, which is what they did in the Victorian era. And uh, his wife... Died in the house, giving birth to their daughter. A very tragic thing, a very sad thing. Uh, she died in childbirth, but the baby survived. Uh, unfortunately, about the age of three, I think it was, she succumbed to, I think it was yellow fever. Ah. Uh, you know, one of these, one of these, you know, either yellow fever or something like that that was such a plague a hundred or more years ago. But today, you know, we don't even think about that because it doesn't happen. We have medication for it. But in those days, it was severe, and it took a lot of children, as a matter of fact. So they think this little girl is still haunting this house. And one reason why they think she's haunting it is among the furniture that they have in there, they have a collection of old toys from the Victorian era. There's dolls, and there's a little, um, little cradle and that kind of stuff. So at night, when they leave, they put everything away. They put the toys back in the room where they should be and everything, and they set all the alarms, and then they leave. And they come back in the morning unlock and they'll find that the toys are scattered all around the house and they have to go pick them up. Uh, so they think that the little girl is out there, you know, playing with these toys. But the story is that the superintendent there asked me if I would do an investigation at the house. So I spent the night there. uh it was myself, uh, the superintendent, and another investigator from Tampa, Florida. And the three of us were there. And the only thing that we noted was that the house had a very unusual quietness about it. Um, Right across the street from the house was a biker bar, and there were bikes going up and down the street all night, you know, engines revving, you know, tires squealing. If you opened the door of this house, you would hear loud music and everything else like that. But the minute you closed the door, it was like you hermetically sealed this building. It it became preternaturally quiet. And the superintendent even remarked on that. She said, said, I have never felt anything like this. This quiet is so unnatural. And the three of us felt that, but we didn't see anything. We just felt this intense quiet, and we had all the lights out in the place. It was totally dark. We went to different areas of the house, and we tried to make contact with anything that might be there, and nothing happened. You know, it was a total total bust. All we had was this quiet. So at about 3 o'clock in the morning, we decide, okay, we're just going to... We're going to leave. Nothing's happening. We're wasting our time. Let's just call it a night. So we pick up our gear, which wasn't much. with was some recorders and cameras and things like that. We pack it all up, and we start heading out of the house. Now, to get out of the house, we set all the alarms, so we had to go out through the kitchen, through the back way. And as we were going out through the kitchen, there was a wood-burning stove that was standing there. Now, again, we're in darkness. There's three of us, and we have one flashlight. We're walking through this kitchen in the dark. And there's a wood-burning stove there, and now... The wood burning stove on the surface has a a round metal disc, a a cast iron disc, probably about 18 inches, maybe two feet across in diameter. And attached to that in the center is this eye bolt. And attached to that is a cast iron rod that's about 18 inches long, maybe, and probably weighs maybe a pound and a half. So it's got some weight to it. It's got some heft to it. And it's iron. And it's sitting completely on the surface of this stove. So as we walked by, I just happened to notice in the, in the flashlight glow, I, I spotted movement to my right. And I said, Hey, wait. And just as I said that, we turned and looked, and this rod, this 18-inch cast iron rod, jumped up off the lid. It it a flip. It flipped 180. It flipped up and slammed down on that lid so heavy, so hard, I went bang, and it just popped off. That rod actually popped off the eyeball and landed on the floor. Now we're the only people in the house. We stood there, and we said the most obvious, dumb thing you could possibly say, which was, did you see that? <laughs> <laughs> yes. All us were, we, stood, we saw this happen. And, of course, you know, cameras are packed up, right? Everything is gone. Everything is away. So we had no way of recording this. And we saw that, and we just stood there. And we tried to see if we can um, make that happen again. We picked up the rod. We tried to see if maybe there was something that we did. You know, did we somehow knock into it? But there was nothing, there was no action or anything that we could have done that would have made it actually physically rise up, do a 180, and do it violently and with force, you know? defied all the laws of physics.
2: And John, by the way, I'm sorry to cut you off there, but at this time, how deep in the game were you in terms of investigating the paranormal? Was this something in maybe like your second, third year of doing this, or was this something much later on in the game?
0: Yeah, probably later. I I probably had been investigating at that point for maybe maybe six or seven years, I I guess. I see. Okay. And it's interesting that one thing, and I don't know if this is where you're leading to it or not, but I do a lot of public speaking in libraries and universities and at conferences and things like that. And I was giving a talk at a library once, um, just about ghosts in general and, and doing my bit. Sure. And when it was over, um, a woman came up to me and she said she identified herself as a spiritualist minister. And as such, she said that, that she's um She's a medium, you know, she could see ghosts, she can sense ghosts. Anyway, she said, uh, she said, I've I've been listening to you. I I really like the way you handle this. You have a lot of respect for respect for the dead, respect for what you're doing, respect for the idea of a spirit world. And she said, I can see auras. And she said, I could, I could read your aura. And she said, um, said, can you see auras? I said, no, I don't, I don't have any of those abilities. She said, well, I can see yours. And it indicates to me that you're open to this thing. And I said, Well, yeah, I am. I mean, I'm I'm an open minded person. Sure. I'm willing to listen to points of view, you know. And she said, Well, the spirits know that. And because they know that, they will be attracted to you. And I said, Well, I I'm not sure that I've, you know, witnessed that or felt that. And she said, Well, you will, you know, you will. And this was before, you know, a couple of years maybe before, but I think she was on to something. I think sort of the way that that I approach it might make me more um I don't want to say susceptible, but in a way, act accessible maybe to the spirit world, you know. So that might be why that kind of an event occurred. I um, see. It's possible.
2: Yes. And John, by the way, when you were growing up, did you have any of these sort of encounters?
0: Not so much as a child, really. Um, most of this came on later on as an adult. I guess when I was maybe in my, let's see, maybe in my 20s or early 30s, uh, I grew up in Connecticut, And at that time, I was living in Monroe, Connecticut, which is where Ed and Lorraine Warren lived for many, many years. Uh, And I'm I'm sure your listeners probably know who they are. I always refer to them as the godfather and godmother of American ghost hunting. Uh, they both passed on since then. Mm -hmm. But I got to know them. You Uh, met them, though, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was invited to their house. Uh, and I spent some time with them at their home looking at some photos they had. Uh they were looking at some photos that I had taken of a place called Dudley Town in Connecticut. Uh and so I got to know them a little bit. And in fact, in my book Ghost Hunters, I have uh two interviews with Ed and Ed and Lorraine. Right. right. And actually they're they're about they're about twelve years apart. So the first one is with Ed and Lorraine, and that's when Ed was still hale and hardy and this The solid man. (laughs) The second one was, unfortunately, after he had had this massive stroke. uh, And when I went there that time, he was in a wheelchair, uh, completely paralyzed, unable to speak. He can only make noises. Oh, man. That was really very sad to see. Yeah. Uh, And Lorraine was there Uh, always as her care as his caretaker as she was all the time even when he was healthy Uh, so I I was interviewing her primarily but um, so so they got me again a little more involved with it and then I started taking things a little more seriously at that point I think
2: understood understood and of course for those that don't know the very popular film Annabelle comes from
0: them right uh, and they did a couple other ones too, The Conjuring, right. and some mm-hmm. of those other ones, and and actually Lorraine Lorraine Warren, I'm not exactly sure what her official capacity was in those movies, but she was something like an like advisor, like a consultant, a consultant. Yeah. yes, right. And she was on set while it was being filmed and everything too. So,
2: yeah, very interesting couple, just interesting they were. people in they general, were. really.
0: Yeah, and they had a they had a much different um, viewpoint towards the paranormal than I than I do. Uh, They were very devout Catholics, the two of them. And so for them, the whole idea of the paranormal was sort of good versus evil, uh, the devil versus God. Uh, And so a lot of times when they were talking about um, ghostly encounters, they were frequently talking about demonic encounters, um, possibly exorcisms. Well, that's a real person being possessed. But when they had some of these spirits that they came up against in their in their lifetime, they frequently considered them to be demonic. So they had a very religious point of view about it, which was not the way I looked at it. And it's still not the way I look at it. Now, we have a little difference there. It's not that it's important or not, but um, I don't necessarily uh, believe that there are demons. Um, what I believe is that Whatever we are here in life, if we are good, honest, upright people, then whatever the afterlife means, and I don't know exactly what that means, we're going to be the same kind of person we're not going to change you know why why would our personality change? on the other hand, if we were you know cruel and mean and vindictive and evil and bad, and there are people like that, we know that um, oh yeah, I think they would maintain that kind of a character in their afterlife. so are they demons well. No, but you probably wouldn't want to come up against them. Yeah,
2: that's interesting that you have that take, because not many people share that sort of view in terms of demons.
0: Well, I think that's true. But I but I think, again, if you go way, way back in history, the whole idea of, of demons is centered in religion, not necessarily just Christianity either. I mean, there are certainly other religions around the world that have demons, and they also have the counterpart you want to call it an angel or some kind of a good spirit. I mean, they have that. There's always this cosmic good versus evil. Good versus evil. Yeah. 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 But I think that's that's couched in religious terms all the time. Um, But that sort of comes into the shapeshifter thing that we're going to be talking about a little bit because-
2: We'll get into that in a moment here, but that makes me uh, curious even further about your upbringing. Uh, Was mom and dad, were they religious? And was that something that was- um, uh, I guess. Um, I, I was gonna say, is that something that perhaps you were a part of at one time or another?
0: Oh, uh, sure, yeah. I mean, my parents um, were also devout Catholics. Um, you know, went to church every Sunday. I went to Catholic high school. I went to a Catholic university. Um, I was raised very much as a as a believing Catholic. Um, and it wasn't until probably as an adult, as a young man that I started moving away from Catholicism and then eventually uh, left it entirely. Um, but, you know, everything that they taught me, I mean, I'm, I was certainly well-grounded in Catholicism and the beliefs of Christianity generally, you know, so... Um, and what made you turn yeah. your back on that? And I'm
2: saying that, of course, sarcastically, joking here.
0: Well, I mean, there were a lot of things. I I, I think part of it was the idea that I was being told things that were considered that was dogma. In other words, if you wanted to be a Catholic, yeah, you had to believe certain things. You right, had to right. say yes, this happened. Um, you had to accept certain things. And as I thought about it and got older, and you know, started doing reading on my own in other religions and philosophy and whatever, it became apparent to me that I couldn't hold those beliefs. That that I couldn't. They didn't work for me. I just I couldn't find any logic or reasoning yeah. or anything for them, you know?
2: Um, you couldn't so connect with it in other words. What's that? I said you couldn't connect with it properly. No, that's
0: right. That's yeah. right. It wasn't, it wasn't meaningful for me. And, it, and it's not to deride anybody that, that has those beliefs. But sure. for me, it was just like, no, it, it, doesn't, it, it didn't make sense to me at all. Um, and so where I am now, I heard you talking to some of your guests previously, and I'm in the same realm, which, I, which is that I believe every religion in the world has some value to it, yeah. have some good principles to exactly. them. Good beliefs
2: yeah they all all religion they all seem to carry a piece of the cosmic puzzle, I like to say
0: well, I think yeah, I think that's true, I think that's true, and so i I guess I find it hard to believe that any one religion is right, yeah, right, That yeah. they have a lock on the truth, you know
2: I'm with you on that one, John. 100%. I, I'm right there with you. I personally, I'm an agnostic atheist. So it really does depend on my mood during that time, whether I believe in a God per se or not, as, right. you know, as childish as that may seem. But we all have our ups and our downs. And sometimes we are left with this internal battle from within a spiritual battle.
0: That's true. and And I think it's important. Well, it's important for me. I can't say it's important for everybody else. Sure. But it's important for me to to continue to try to explore spirituality, to explore what is truthful for me, what works for me, and so that's been that's been uh, sort of a quest since I left the church officially, and it continues today. I'm still I do a lot of reading and a lot of different you know religious uh, books and, and texts, and I do a lot of work with people of all different faiths and everything else, trying to sort of figure out what's the best path to take.
2: Right. And it's always the same one. There's never one answer for the sum of your problems.
0: That's that's true. It's that's incredible, true.
2: right? Yeah. Just like in life, there's never not one path. Right. Amazing. It's like quantum physics. Oh, yes, sir. <laughs> Every Definitely. time you make
0: one decision, there's a myriad of other ones that you didn't make.
2: Amazing. And of course, I'm curious to know as well, um, growing up, did you ever think and imagine you would be doing this sort of work, John? The fact that you've <laughs> have become very popular in terms of the paranormal in that
0: field—right, it's true—and and I had to say, no, uh, that was certainly not anywhere on my radar screen. Uh, you know, after I got out of college, I was in I was in sales and marketing, pharmaceuticals, and and medical equipment and things like that for many years. I had an ad agency for a while in that field. Um, so yeah, I never really thought I was going to get into that wild Uh,
2: stuff, right? How life just quickly turns in an instant.
0: Oh yeah, definitely. And you need to be, um, open to that instant because you don't know if it's going to work out for the good or for the bad, but you know, you need to be open to it and find out.
2: One thing I learned is that people are afraid of change and they're afraid of the unknown and what's new. And a lot of these fears hold them back. And that's something I've learned much later on in life. As I've grown older, I've learned that I've had a lot of fear uh, in my heart, and it's what's held me back uh, in a lot of things in my adult life. And I've been getting over all those sort of things. I, I no longer have anger or fear in my heart, John.
0: Well, that's great, and I and I think that's true for a lot of people. Is that they there is fear, especially of change or of the unknown. You know, it's very comfortable when you get into some kind of a routine or a system where everything is the same, you know, exactly what's going to happen day to day and it's comfortable and you don't want to move out of that comfort zone. How often do we say, you know, the old expression, stretch your comfort zone. Right. Right. Um, But it's true. It's true. I mean, you need to take those. Well, uh, that's what I believe. Again, I can't speak for anybody else, but myself, but I do feel that for me, it's always been important to, uh, to try to do that, to try to see what what's out there and to, Try not to be fearful about it. And, no doubt. And, and realizing, as the Buddhists say, that everything is in a state of change. Everything is continually changing. There is nothing. There is no permanence to anything. So why be afraid of it?
2: Yeah, don't be afraid of change, no doubt. And John, I, I am curious about your, your parents. Are they still alive?
0: They are not. Okay. Um, they both passed they away both in passed. 2016 within five days of each other. Holy hell. Yeah, that's what I said. Wow, five days. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, they're both. I mean, they were both 92 years old. Holy so crap, they were up they there had a like nice long life.
2: <laughs> they were as old as Paul Hellier.
0: Yeah, yeah that's right.
2: Good Lord. So, John, you're going to live for a while. You got that? those uh, <laughs> great genetics there.
0: Oh, well, possibly. You no. won't
2: even have to mesh with machine, John. You're going to live for a long, long ass time here.
0: Okay. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Amazing so. stuff. And, John, uh, while your folks were still alive, Um, How did they feel about your embrace in the paranormal? Were they open-minded to these sort of subjects or were they more more, uh, closed off? And let me give you an example really quickly. Uh, Like, uh, for instance, my dad, he's very open-minded. My mom, not so much kind of closed-minded, much more along the religious uh, Bible belt sort of thing for a long time. And she got away from all of that for a while, and then one night... Uh, over at my parents' house, my father actually saw a UFO in the sky, and that drove my mom to go right back into religion, and she's never talked about that incident ever again. And anytime my father wants to bring it up, she shuts him down and leaves the room.
0: (laughs) Wow. Well, um, I don't know that my parents ever had any kind of experiences, you know, sort of otherworldly or whatever, but I do know that growing up, Neither one of them went to college. I was the first one in their family to go to college. And, you know, so because of that, I'm sure they had great expectations. You know, your son goes to college. He's going to be my son, the doctor, my son, the lawyer, but but not not my son, the ghost hunter.
2: (laughs) Yeah, the the ghost investigator.
0: Right, but you know. But having said that, I mean, they they realize, of course, that what was driving all this too was my writing, and I identify myself as a writer before Any, anything anything else, criminal investigator, or whatever. And it comes uh, through
2: your books, by the way, John. Not not to kiss your backside again, but you definitely are a very excellent writer. I, I do want to make that clear to everyone out there.
0: Well, well, again, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And I think for my parents, what what they were how they were able to accept it was. Because they were such strict Catholics, mm. you know, they had a firm yeah. belief in a heaven and a hell. So obviously they had a belief in a soul, something that was eternal that went on after life. They had a belief in angels and saints and, you know, all, all those sort of metaphysical right. personages. So because of that, it, wasn't, it really wasn't a stretch because they could say, OK, well, you know, I guess if, uh, if we accept that there's a soul and there's an afterlife, we could also accept the possibility that there's a ghost. I mean, that might simply – we don't know what that is. It might simply be a person who was passed on. And maybe they're on their way to heaven or hell, and they, they temporarily are here or yeah. whatever. So they were able to, I think, relate to that. Plus my mother, her parents both came from Sicily, and mm. they were not educated folks. They came from rural areas of Sicily, and they came with a lot of folk beliefs. Uh, oh, and, yeah. Right. You know, yeah, and passed it them is, on to my mother. It's too. embedded
2: into your culture, no doubt.
0: Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So so just I'm like
2: many cultures, there, by the way.
0: That's true. Yeah, right, of course. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And and once you know, once I started producing books too, it was like it uh, wasn't my son, the ghost hunter anymore. It was my son, the writer. So, <laughs> so I moved up a notch.
2: Amazing stuff. And of course, I think it's time to go over your book, your newest book, uh, "Shapeshifters: A uh, History." And I've always been fascinated with this uh, subject as well. And so has man. For instance, I've always, uh, I've always thought the subject to sort of be silly at first when I first heard of werewolves and all these sort of. Uh, Folk tales, like many of us did back in uh, grade school. I'm not sure if you remember those times back in grade school. Personally, (laughs) I hated reading books. So when I found uh, the paranormal and, and other cryptids, I was excited to actually read. I was compelled to read after that point.
0: Well, I'm glad that I did it for you and <laughs> get you back into reading. Oh, I, you know? it, it
2: definitely did because I hated reading. So when I found out that there were actual books about these subjects, uh, yeah. I was definitely in and right. grotesque hybrid animals and humans have long been a part of the minds of ancient man before Christ, as they say. And not only were these archetypes, but others out there believed these were actual physical beings. And I thought we could pick up from there, my friend.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a good intro because that's exactly what this book does. You know, the the um subtitle is a history. So this isn't this isn't fiction. I mean, this is about shapeshifters uh throughout other cultures. And what I found in looking at this um was that the shapeshifter character is almost universal. You can find it in cultures all around the world. Right. And not just all around the world, but as you were saying, from ancient times, actually, from there's evidence from like Neolithic times of a shapeshifter belief, uh, right up to today, where you still have shapeshifters in folklore, you still have them in you know popular culture, like the movies and and TV programs and books and whatever. Uh, but you also have them in reality. I mean, there are still cult- there are cultures. Where people say, "Yes, I have had an experience with a shapeshifter," you know, and, and not necessarily even talking about what we might consider, you know, indigenous cultures or cultures that maybe don't have the same um, academic, you know, abilities that we have here. I mean, I'm talking about <laughs> Americans. I'm talking about people in some very remote areas. Whatever. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, very very broad spectrum.
2: Oh yes, and how long did it take for you to put this together? By the way.
0: I researched this probably for about two years, I guess. And I think, as I said earlier, part of my research took me to uh, eight countries in Europe, which was interesting because I was in Western Europe, in Portugal, France, Italy, and Monaco. Then I went to Eastern Europe. I was in Belarus, and and nobody goes to Belarus. (laughs) But but I was there. I was in Ukraine, uh, Romania. And then this past year, I was in five countries in Asia, uh, India, Sri Lanka, Cambodia, mm, where else? Philippines, and I'm forgetting somewhere else. You've been anyway, all over the place. Five countries, yeah. Um, wow. Just to do research, and 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 finding again that this whole idea of shapeshifter, you know, is is everywhere. Is everywhere.
2: Yes, it's all over the place, and of course, uh, this reminds me of uh, another cryptid out there, and. It reminds me instantly, and I hope I get this right. This is just off the top of my head, but the sino syphilis, the dog headed man who was described by uh, Marco Polo's thirteenth century travels to India, if I recall. I'm not sure if you ever heard of that, but but uh, well, there's I a have, lot of that online,
0: and, yeah, and the interesting thing is that we have a parallel now in the midwest. Here in the U.S., um, I think mostly around Wisconsin and so sort of the upper Midwest, of uh, what they call Dog Man. Dog Man, right. Yeah. And it's basically, the description is pretty similar to what Marco Polo was talking about. Uh, so, you know, what is that? Are what, we yeah. talking about? It's like, what the, cr- hell,
2: what, what the hell did he see? That's what I'm wondering.
0: Right. Right. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> That's a good question. What did he see? What uh,
2: did he see? Because did I, I don't think he just wrote this just to troll people or anything like that. I think he might have seen something.
0: Well, I, I think so. I think it's possible. I mean, we we don't know. You know, we don't know what, what he saw or, or did, but it, I think it's very possible that yep. he saw something. Now, again, whether it was something that could have been like, let's say a cryptid, for instance, which maybe in even his time, maybe we didn't know what it was. Maybe we know what it is today. Uh, maybe his description is a little bit off. Maybe he was talking about some kind of a, you know, a wolf or something that we that we know now. It's It's hard to say.
2: Yes, but, but it's so, fun. It's fun yeah, to speculate, so we have though. Like the
0: Dog men in the Midwest, for instance. I think what you're talking about there, though, is probably some kind of a cryptid, just like uh, Sasquatch and you know, chupacabra and things like that, which I think are not. I don't think they're shapeshifters. Not shapeshifters, like, yeah. Right, just something we don't know exactly what they are, but something you know, something animal, some kind of a species we haven't discovered yet.
2: Yes, and for those that don't know what the, what syphilis is. Uh, no, it's not w- one of those sort of things. <laughs> for for those with dirty minds out there, no, that's not uh, what I'm referring to. If if you are curious, uh, the tribes of the Sinosyphilis, they apparently barked and spoke English and lived in caves. Again, I have no idea what Marco Polo was describing or if he was making that up, but these sort of stories have been around uh, for a long time, too.
0: hmm Right. And it's interesting because there's uh, – in my book, in shapeshifters I have some accounts fairly recently, and like within like the last 30 years or so, of um, what looks like possible werewolf encounters in India. So, you know, here we go. Uh, is that what he was talking about that long ago, and are they still around?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. Who knows, right? And it, again, it's fun to speculate. right. Right. Very, very fun to speculate. And of course, uh, this reminds me now, since we're talking about shapeshifters, uh, David Icke. Mm -hmm. He talks about shapeshifters all the time, but he also talks about reptilians who are these shapeshifters. And I'm not exactly sure what your opinion is on David Icke or what he's been talking about for uh, the longest time. But he always talks about these reptilians, this cabal, the elite that control the world, um, what's your take on David and this uh, perception that he has?
0: Yeah, I actually write about him in my book, um, in the chapter about correct. I don't know what chapter it is. I saw but that. I did mention him. Yeah, and he talks about what he calls the Babylonian, Babylonian Brotherhood. Uh, and it's, like you say, it's this cabal of people, well, I'll hold off point of people, but of, of beings that are now in positions of power around the world, in the U.S. and other countries, and are gradually moving into those positions. Now, who are these people? Well, he goes back to say that millions of years ago, from some star system, I forgot the name, but you know, David has it all light out very, uh, very detailed, the name of the star system and the planet and everything else, but he said that there were aliens, and he says reptilian aliens, so people that had a reptilian form to them, but were shapeshifters, that they came to Earth millions of years ago and basically mated with whatever proto-human beings were on the planet at that time. You know, I don't know, Neanderthal or whatever they were. But that by doing that, they created this genetic bloodline that has this reptilian-alien shape-shifting gene within it so that over the centuries, over the thousands and thousands of years, there's been this creation of reptilian aliens that had been among us but, you know, hidden because they are shapeshifters and we don't see them that way. Um, and I'm not exactly sure, uh, you know, I, I don't want to paraphrase, try to say what he says because I may make it this inaccurately. But the whole idea, I thought, was that they are taking control. And I know that he says that some of the reptilian alien shapeshifters have been people like Queen Elizabeth, too. Um, Barack Obama, <laughs> it goes back to not just world leaders in terms of politics, but even major athletes. Yeah, he's you know, listing all kinds of names. Yes, right. There's a whole list of people that he calls reptilian aliens. Uh, and I think he claims to have something like 20 million people that follow his, his belief and he, get his newsletter. and all that. He's
2: got a huge fan base and right. uh, his speeches, by the way, are like four or five hours long. That's true, Very right, you know, I've, I've, heard,
0: I've heard some of them to some point until I you know couldn't take any more of it but um so you know, my personal opinion is just that it's it's an interesting story that he's put together um but it's hard to it, it's hard for me to give it a whole lot of credence because there's just no there's no evidence of any kind really i mean there's no facts to back it up it's just it's cut from whole cloth, you know, so um I'm not really sure about that.
2: Yes. It's very unusual that he's been saying this for such a long time now. And he really believes that.
0: I I don't know if he does or not. I mean, I I assume he does, but you know, for all I know, this could be, you know, could be a good laugh. He's having on us too. Oh, you never know.
2: know. That's true. That's true. He might just be laughing all the way to the bank.
0: Well, he could very well be,
2: but I do agree with him though, in terms of, these reptilians in terms of archetypes I, f- I feel that we see plenty of those around
0: well there are i mean you can even look at some of the like i said some of these cultures and look at some uh, folk tales or folk beliefs or even some fairy tales you know and there are certainly uh, shape-shifting reptiles or shape-shifting amphibians uh it it's not unusual. Um shapeshifting snakes and all this, I mean, there are in a lot of cultures. So that that archetype, if you want to call it that, that character is there. So it's not a stretch necessarily to say that, okay, well, maybe there's lizard men, you know, if you want to call them that, the reptilian alien shapeshifters. Um, there is a basis for that in the sense that, yeah, there have been reptilian aliens, or reptilian shapeshifters in different cultures, in folklore, in mythology. So they are there. They're in our mind. They're in our consciousness.
2: They really are. They really are. And, of course, as we go along here and talk about other cryptids for a moment here, uh, are there any cryptids that you think don't exist at all?
0: <laughs> well, wait a minute. cryptids that don't exist at all. Uh, okay. Um, I'm not even sure how to answer that. If it If it doesn't exist, how— I don't. I'm not sure. I'm getting the question. Even
2: you're not understanding the question. I'm just asking if there are uh, any of these sort of cryptids that you think uh, wouldn't exist at all. Like for an example for me personally, it it would be like the Loch Ness monster. Oh, okay. I yeah, I just don't think Old Nessie uh, is something that actually exists in in this current time. And to right. be honest with you, I'm nearly done with Bigfoot. Almost. I'm on the fence.
0: Yeah no okay I understand what you're saying yeah and um, I'm not sure the ones that I've heard about I think there's possibilities for instance Bigfoot Sasquatch I mean there's some parallels in the Himalayas you know with the Yeti uh, people think that it, it seems similar to Bigfoot uh, here in Ohio we have something called the Ohio Grassman which is again sort of this big furry kind of hominid looking person I'm on shattered
2: like I, I'm on shattered faith here. Yeah, <laughs> you what? I said I'm on shattered faith here.
0: Oh, <laughs> okay.
2: I'm being dramatic, of course, but yes. Yeah,
0: yeah, no, I understand. <laughs> but but so I think some of these, you know, I, the ones that I've heard, I think there's a possibility that they might actually exist. Nessie is a little bit different because that sounds almost like they're <clears throat> describing some sort of prehistoric, almost dinosaur-like, you know, aquatic creature. Now that might be pushing it too far. But you know, think about this too, though. What was it, back in the 50s, I guess, or something, when off the coast of Africa, some fisherman pulled up a coelacanth, this ugly-looking fish that everybody thought had been extinct for like 50 million years or something. And there it was, alive, and now they know they're still down there. So we don't know. Yeah, we don't know exactly. Especially in the ocean, you know? Yeah, they're still haven't, I haven't found anything that any of the cryptids that I've heard about, to me, don't seem that bizarre or that out of line that I think that there couldn't be a possibility that they may actually exist.
2: You're still hanging on. I'm still hanging on. You're still hanging on. You know, I did hear of one story about a child being lost in the woods only to have been nurtured from some, apparently some say it was a Bigfoot and then some people say it was a bear, but bears aren't exactly known to do that sort of thing.
0: I wouldn't think so, but, um, so, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that story but if if Bigfoot is something between animal and human, you know, I could see the possibility where it may have had those maternal instincts or whatever to take care of something that looked like roughly looked like one of its own or something like that. I yes. we hear about animals adopting sometimes adopting other uh, baby animals of a different species that they find and, and that seems to happen now and then so I found knows.
2: I found the the news article really quickly here it's a, a kid or a child rather a 3-year-old by the name of Casey Hathaway who apparently went missing for 3 days and apparently a bear kept him company <laughs> okay. I don't know any bear that would do that though
0: uh well yeah I'm not I'm not a bear expert but yeah, I Yeah I'm not definitely... a bear expert by the way I'm a little skeptical.
2: <laughs> I'm skeptical too. That's why I'm thinking some people were saying perhaps what he was experiencing was maybe a Bigfoot.
0: Yeah, well, that's what I say. Who knows? I mean, it's a possibility. If if they have that kind of instinct, you know, that's fun maybe. to
2: speculate. Very fun to speculate. And of course, on another weird tidbit in relationship to a Bigfoot are UFOs. For whatever reason, I've heard a number of individuals that I've interviewed on the show and, of course, talked to in person who mentioned uh, Bigfoot in terms of seeing this sort of weird correlation between uh, UFO sightings and Bigfoot. I've even heard that crafts drop them off on Earth. That That's the most wildest thing I've heard, but that's one of the many, my friend.
0: Hmm. <laughs> well, I haven't heard that one, but yeah, okay. It doesn't surprise me. Very
2: weird, very weird. Yeah, there was a guy on here I interviewed... <laughs> maybe a year or two ago and he was talking about Mount Shasta and lots of sightings out there for whatever reason. But what was strange is that he encountered Bigfoot uh, shortly after a UFO encounter.
0: Oh, at, at Mount Shasta. Yes. Or Around there. Yeah. I just finished reading a novel and I can't remember the name of it, but it Mount Shasta figures in it predominantly. And it talks in there about some of the native American lore about Mount Shasta. But if I, if I read this correctly, The belief was that there's um, not that it's a vortex, but that there's a A a gate, for lack of a a, better word.
2: A gate or a portal, as they say.
0: Right. Yeah. Something at Mount Shasta that opens up or, you know, that that can take you into another realm, take you out of here and to somewhere else. Um, and, And so I think, you know, the Native Americans, I think, revered that mountain. And that may be part of why they did.
2: You know, you might be right, and I'm so glad you said that because now that brings me to another very interesting uh, tidbit here, and that, of course, is Skinwalker Ranch. We can't really go too far off here without bringing that, uh, uh, bringing that up. Right. Yes. Right. Lots of um weird sightings uh, in the skies and on the ground when it comes to Skinwalker Ranch. A number of bizarre sightings took place out there in uh, Utah, I believe it is hmm 480 and it, acres i believe
0: yeah i i try to think i just was talking with somebody about that before i can't think of the person that owns that uh ranch but yeah it's famous and i love the name of it too because you know in the southwest the idea of the skinwalker especially among the navajo the Dene people uh you know they call it a chindi but it's it's pretty much the same thing and it's the idea again of a human being that can transform itself into something other than human and in fact uh, for the Navajo, the Skinwalker is a very—it's—it's uh, it's an evil entity. I mean, there's nothing nice about this thing, <laughs> you know. And usually, you invoke a Skinwalker to enact revenge on somebody because it—it'll go after him, it'll kill him. Um, and usually, the person who is the Skinwalker is a, a Brujo, a, a witch. A witch, correct? Right, right. Somebody that can actually make those make those changes. But there's an interesting, little interesting side story to Skinwalker, too, that people overlook, which is that in addition to being sort of this evil, intent, murdering machine, which it is, it also is uh, considered a protector of the environment. So that's a whole different aspect, you know. And so you would imagine that if you lived in an area where you were doing strip mining or something and taking down mountaintops, that if there was a skinwalker around there, you might be in bad company, you know, because you might go after you. So there's there's that sort of other side of of the skinwalker as kind of a protector. Um, that's that's usually not spoken about. All we hear is sort of the the horrible part of it, you know, because that's the that's the gory, interesting part that yes. we all want to hear. That's the <laughs> yes,
2: that's the fun part. And of course, that was once owned by the Sherman family, later owned by Robert Bigelow,
0: who there took ownership.
2: I, yeah, I think that's the name you were fishing for.
0: Right. Yep.
2: My God, he he's involved in everything now, right? That Robert Bigelow.
0: <laughs> it sounds like he's it.
2: got his hand everywhere. He has his hand in the whole UFO thing. And that's another thing that I wanted to quickly mention here since we brought up Robert Bigelow, uh, the whole UFO craze. As of late, we've seen mainstream media roll with the headline stories of UFOs and pilots seeing these things in, in the skies and in the water. All sorts of sightings have been going on for such a long time, causing the Navy to um, even change their guidelines in terms of reporting these events. Uh, John, I'm sure you've heard all about this and have been uh, reading into all this weirdness going on lately.
0: Well, I have heard the recent changes that they've made, too, in terms of reporting procedures and things like that on UFOs. I, I can't say that I'm a UFO expert. I haven't That's really okay. followed all that closely. Um, but but I do think that there's some interesting things that I found Actually, in my book about UFOs. There's a, a guy named M.J. I always mess up his last word, his last name. It's Benias, I guess. B.A.N.I.A.S. Um, I don't know if he's ever been on your show, but he's oh, a no. Uf, UFOlogist, <laughs> and he's he's really uh, top notch in that regard. But what he talks about is because I was talking to him about shapeshifters, and he said, "Well, you know, he thinks that any alien that would encounter a human being would have to by." just by that simple encounter would have to be a shapeshifter. Hmm. And I said, well, why would it have to be a shapeshifter? And why couldn't it just be whatever it is, you know, a silver being or a little green man, whatever, whatever he was, why would it be a shapeshifter? And he said, because our brains, the human brain would not be able to recognize an alien. Oh, you know, okay. It, and okay, it's true form, right? I because, see. Because well, what's our brain do? It immediately has to categorize things, right? Yes. If we see something we don't know, we have to say, okay, it sort of fits into this box or no, it really goes into this box. But we have to do that in order to make sense of things. So his theory is that an alien would be – think of the word alien. It would be so alien to us, to our brain, that unless that alien was able to somehow change its appearance to match what would work in our reality, um, it wouldn't even be able to make any contact because it, it, we wouldn't even recognize it, we wouldn't even we wouldn't even see it in a sense, you know, um I thought, wow, that's very interesting. so this might explain sometimes why you hear some different encounters about aliens. sometimes we hear about them being sort of these you know slim, tall, silvery kind of beings with big black eyes. you know you've seen that, yeah, but in other places we hear different descriptions. well why are they different? It's pretty unlikely that if we're being visited by anything, they're being visited by hundreds of different planets I mean. I suppose it's possible, but it's more likely that there's been one or something that's, you know, here. So so why are they different? Well, they might be different only because the people who are having encounters are perceiving them the way their brain would think an alien would look like or would somehow fit into some kind of recognition as alien.
2: That's so, interesting, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's really. I mean, I'm probably mangling a little bit. I did a better job in writing about it, I think. <laughs> but uh, but it really is an interesting theory. I thought that makes a lot of sense. It makes all kinds of sense.
2: I mean, it yeah. does make sense once you uh, think about how the human mind tends to do these sort of things with, with objects that aren't exactly real. Uh, same with uh, an animal or a plant, we tend to anthropomorphize. Mm-hmm. Is, is right. the the technical term. Uh, right. And that's sort of something that tends to happen to some folks when they see clouds in the sky. They think they're seeing people in the sky. Sure. And yeah. Sure. Or rocks or all, all sorts of things. Even a stain on the side of a house, people think it's Jesus Christ or the Virgin Mary.
0: Right. Right. Burnt toast, Elvis, you know, I've seen those. Yeah.
2: <laughs> we are, Our minds tend to do that. And, well, I, and they, have to. Interesting. they have
0: to keep us sane and to make sense of our world.
2: Yeah, I'm with you on that one uh, for sure. And what was the name of that, that guy's name again?
0: It's M-J uh, – it's B-A-N-I-A-S. I see. Okay. I, I don't know how exactly how to pronounce his name.
2: Well, I'll, I'll definitely look him up. He sounds like an interesting character.
0: Yeah, I think he'd be great on your show, actually.
2: Yeah, that'd be fun. And just going back to Skinwalker Ranch here for a moment, um, we talked about portals and gateways do you think perhaps that's what's going on out there?
0: Well, I don't know for sure. I, I mean, I know there are, I do believe there are sort of areas of the world where there there is energy, more energy than anything else, and where some some ley lines that people might know about those come together in some places. And I think there's there could be some kind of a a portal if you will created that can might, you know, maybe take you into a different realm. And and it I don't know if it's going on at Skinwalker or not. I mean, I suppose it's possible.
2: And right now I'm going to, and I should have have done this earlier. I was going to put uh, the cover of your book up in the chat room for those who are watching and listening over YouTube. And, of course, shout out to those who will listen to this tomorrow on the various networks. Hello from the future. And, yes, I'm looking for the cover of your book. There it is. I really like the cover. It's a very old school looking cover. That's yeah, the classic yeah, sure. one. It's,
0: yep, it's an old German uh, engraving. And
2: devouring that woman there. Yes. <laughs> very right. nice. And earlier you mentioned the chupacabra. You right. wouldn't consider that a shapeshifter, though.
0: No, no, I don't. I I think it's some kind of a cryptid. Um, I don't know exactly what again, but I I don't think it's a shapeshifter because I'm not aware of. Well. I haven't heard stories or reports of it shifting as much as just being out there and being things, you know? Yes.
2: And, of course, going back to some of your paranormal uh, investigations, I've never done that uh, before personally, but I'm open uh, to it. Eventually, I'll pull the trigger and uh, go and do it. Uh, How long have you been doing that, John?
0: Well, I guess I started actually doing the investigations with my my first book, which would have been— 2003 is when I was doing the research. <clears throat> so 15 or 16 years, I guess I've been doing it. Yeah, you've been. And I still do, I don't do it as often anymore because I'm just you know busy writing the books and sure. and shapeshifters is a whole different uh, a different kind of research and everything for me. But yeah, I still get invitations. I'll be doing something in uh, up in Toledo in November and you know so yeah, I'm still doing it when I can. And why is Ohio so haunted? That's a great question. I keep asking myself that because I did two books on Ohio. Exactly. Yeah. And I probably have enough material to do another Another... three or four or (laughs) five. I thought so.
2: (laughs) It's amazing. It really is. Ohio seems to be one of those locations that seem to be just extremely active. Many people believe lots of places in Ohio are legitimately haunted.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. But, you know, I don't know if it's just because, for whatever reason, there are people in Ohio that are taking more time to look for these things and mm. finding them. I guess what I'm saying is I, I, don't, I can't find any real reason why Ohio would be more haunted than any other state. Okay, a lot more people, so that's going to make a difference, perhaps over someplace like maybe Wyoming or Montana, you know, where there's 10 people in the whole state. I think you need a population <laughs> to have a haunting but but still i think that um i don't think ohio is really unique i just have a feeling that there are more folks here involved in doing paranormal work uh-huh. why that is i don't know
2: you think they're more in, in tune with this sort of thing
0: um i'm not sure that they have any more intuition or anything to it i just think that they're interested in it for whatever reason and then it feeds on itself you know i mean as soon as you start looking at a place and hearing stories about it. And then you start talking about it and telling other people, next thing you know, there's a lot of people involved and they start looking at other places as well. So, But there's some really interesting places that that you would not expect in Ohio that are haunted. Uh, For instance, I wrote about uh, the wright Pat Air Force Base, uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, which is a a big Air Force Base, an important base. But they have this um, aeronautical museum there, which is awesome. It's great. It's got you know, some of the early, early planes, World War I and before then, right up to rockets today. But a lot of these uh, planes and aircraft that they have there uh, have been in, in wars. You know, they've been in World War II. They've been in Vietnam. Uh, I mean, men have died in them, and they've created a lot of havoc as well. Uh, and there's all kinds of stories from that place of some of these uh, planes being haunted and everything. And that was, that was like the last place in the world I would expect to hear anything or find anything going on there.
2: And by the way, boss man in the chat room wants me to ask if you have any info on the mound builders in Ohio and West Virginia.
0: Oh well, I mean, there are certainly a lot of mounds. Uh, the one I like most is probably one of the most famous ones—that serpent mound. The serpent
2: mound, uh, correct? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh huh. Just east of me, by about um, maybe forty-five, fifty miles or so from where I live. In fact, I just passed it yesterday coming back from a trip. Um, wow. Yeah. You well, know, I think I think the mounds—I mean, they're they're beautiful constructions, and they're they're mysterious because we don't really know why they were built. Uh, you know some people thought just the basic mound shape there's a lot of smaller mounds. Some people thought well, maybe those were were burial sites you know for important chieftains or something like that. But it turns out that no that doesn't seem to be the case. but then you have something like serpent mound, which is this long snake like it's a snake it's a long snake earthwork, and the mouth opens uh it's open and it looks like there's a like an egg it looks like it's holding an egg in its jaws. Uh, and it's it's not visible really from the ground. I mean, you can walk along the you know walk along the edge of it and say oh there's this earthwork alongside me but you can't really see it as a snake you have to be up above you have to be elevated somewhere at a pretty good distance a good height to see it to be able to see that yeah. it's a snake yeah so you know there's questions about these kinds of mounds and not just in america there's some in you know south america and everything else too and it's oh why were they built that way who were they built for who was looking at these things
2: you know yes that's uh, very which goes interesting back
0: yeah, it goes back to UFOs again, maybe right? Yeah, going I mean, I
2: back suppose. to UFOs. Yeah, right. And you're so, not you're not really that interested in ufology, correct?
0: Well, it's I'm not that interested in. It. I find it interesting, but I'm just it, my field is elsewhere. Elsewhere, right I hear you.
2: No <laughs> doubt, I only no have doubt. So
0: many hours a day.
2: <laughs> I know. Uh, tell me about it. There's so <laughs> many things that you want to get into, but there's just no time.
0: Right. That's the And issue. when I was younger, I was doing a lot. I mean, I read Project Blue book when that came out in the years ago and stuff. So, you know, so I've, I've read some you, of those things. You've today. gone
2: through the rounds.
0: Yeah, uh-huh, I have. Yeah. Yeah, I
2: hear you. Um, by the way, going back to just paranormal investigations, I've never done it, like I said before, but there's a place in San Diego here in California, uh, Coronado Island. I've stayed there over 10 years ago. And I remember people in the area, I overheard them talk about uh, the, hotel. Ho- the hotel, the Hotel Del yeah. Coronado. Coronado, right. And, you know, I should go out there sometime. And <laughs> from off the top of my head, from what I remember, there's a, the story goes a woman checked into that hotel and never left. Her name was, I think, Kate Morgan. And she, so, yeah. yeah, she's like the resident ghost there.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. I visited that hotel. Oh, you were there. Uh, yeah. And it's also in old town, San Diego. There's the, um, I think it's called the Whaley house. I've been there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that too, it was, I guess it was an old courthouse or something at one time, maybe mm-hmm. a jail too. I don't remember exactly, but, uh, yeah, that too is a haunted location. The, the upstairs
2: is very interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So,
0: but the hotel is cool. That's, uh, you know, first of all, it's a beautiful old hotel if nothing else, but, yeah that story is interesting and it's it's quite a mystery so and when you were there you didn't experience anything correct No I didn't I mean I wasn't there that long and you know the thing about um the thing about doing any kind of paranormal investigation is that you can spend hours and hours and hours at a location, as I indicated before, and nothing will happen. Nothing happens, yeah. Right. And you can walk in and be there for two minutes and something will happen. So it, it doesn't happen on demand. You know, you can't go in and say, okay, let's go. I want to see something. I want to see some activity. So you have to be lucky um, and, and it requires time to do it. So, um, and, and the other thing, too, is I don't claim to have any any powers. I'm not a medium. I'm not clairvoyant or anything like that. I'm just a person. A, l-
2: a lot of these people are, I've noticed that, who uh, go on these ghost investigations. A lot of them claim to be mediums or psychics, uh, you right. name it.
0: Right. And, and a lot of the investigations that I've done, um, I've worked with various ghost hunting teams you know, around the country. And frequently they'll have somebody on their team who is a medium. Uh, And so we'll go into a location and the medium who often enough um, is a woman will say something like, okay, uh, I can sense something in this corner here, this building. So we go over there and just say, yeah, okay, I can definitely see it. There's a man sitting here on this chair. And we're all standing around the chair, looking at the chair. And, of course, we're not seeing anything. And she's saying, yeah, he's sitting here. And he's, uh, you know, he's he's motioning to you by the door or something like that. And you know, we're not seeing it. We're not feeling it. I, I've been on these investigations where we've had mediums that I've been, quite honestly, a little s- suspicious of. Thinking, well, you know, I, I could say that, too. Um, how are you going to prove it, you know? But on the other hand, I've been... On investigations where uh, we've had some mediums who have brought out some information about something, like there's a woman here, she's she's looks like she's about 80 years old, she has gray hair, uh, she's she's holding a picture of a child or whatever it might be, and then when you do some research later on. Historical research, actual you know document research, and that kind of thing, and you find out that yeah, there was a woman that was eighty years old, uh, her child died, and you know she was very attached to her or something along those lines, and you say, well, that medium actually hit it so there are I do think there are people who are legitimate and are have the ability to somehow tap into something that happened in the past or tap into spirits that might be still with us, but I also think there's a lot of other people who um, who don't have that ability. And I'm not even saying they're, they're faking it as much as they just maybe truly believe that they're, they're doing that. Yeah, and there are some phonies, of course, as there is in every occupation.
2: Yeah. And as soon as you said that, the name, one name came to mind right away, Sylvia Brown.
0: Oh, Sylvia Brown. I remember her. Um, Back she, in the nineties. Uh, yeah. Yeah. She actually in, endorsed my first ghost hunting book. Oh my
2: God. <laughs> did she really?
0: <laughs> yeah. She wrote a little, it was only like two or three sentences. but Well, that's still nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's still nice yeah, for yeah, you. So I'm not even sure how she got it. I don't know if my publisher sent it to her or whatever, but uh, wow. yeah.
2: Wow. Yeah. She was always coming out on TV back in the day. Right. That's right. And she took a lot of heat too.
0: She did. Well, and they, and they still do. I mean, even somebody like uh, John Edward and some of those other folks, I mean, they, they still, they take it because it's still hard to believe. I, I know a lot of people who are psychics and are mediums. And I know a lot who are legit um, and who I trust. Um, like I said, I've also come across some that I've just thought, no, I'm not Better. thinking that you're yeah. really accurate.
2: I hear you. And of course, John, do you believe in the afterlife?
0: Well, I I do, but not in the typical religious sense. Not the I typical. Think we'll kind okay. of discuss that, right? No. I look at it more scientifically. You know, if you look at all the theories about, all the theories that Einstein brought out. So we know that everything is energy. We know that. Everything is energy. We know that energy cannot be created. It can't be destroyed, but it can be transformed. It can be transferred. And you know. another. Right. So what happens to us when we die, right? We're energy. Well, we certainly know. We talk about pushing up daisies. Yeah, we do. I mean, we just, our carbon ends up in the ground somewhere, someplace, literally being absorbed by a daisy. Next thing you know, we are a daisy. That's part of us. But what about, do, we don't know. I mean, is it possible that maybe even just a little tiny bit of whatever makes us up goes on in some other form. And if you think about it, there's, you know, the Buddhists have this idea, I'm going to call it a cosmic mind. I'm not exactly sure that's the exact term they use, but the idea is sort of a, a universal consciousness, right? That it's out there, it's out there somewhere. We all tap into it. Now, interestingly enough, there's been research done by neuroscientists lately that is coming to that same conclusion, which is that what we consider our mind is is not within our skull. It's not in our body. It's not in us. It's actually outside of us and that we sort of tap into that. Um, I'm not exactly sure of the mechanism, but somehow we're tapping into that. So if that's true, maybe that's the afterlife. Maybe whatever is left of us, maybe that little bit of us, goes into that sort of cosmic mind or, or, or universal consciousness or whatever. Maybe that's the afterlife. So I look at it sort of in terms you know, terms like that, more things that I think are based more on science than on just um, you know faith. I hear you.
2: That makes a lot of sense. And, of course, before we move forward from this topic, I did want to just quickly ask you about human origins and what you believe in.
0: About human origin?
2: Yeah. Do you believe in oh. evolution?
0: Oh, yeah, I'm definitely a science science guy. Science-based guy? Yeah, yeah. I think Darwin had it right. I mean, I think we evolved from lower life forms, uh, yes. and I think we're still evolving. I I believe in the notion of panspermia. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> that's a term I haven't heard in a while. Yeah,
2: I really do believe that's how we were seeded, how life came to be. We came from some sort of asteroid.
0: Well, I mean, everything supposedly is stardust, right? Correct. That's what we say. Yeah. Every, we're, we're all stardust. And keeping that in mind, that goes back to the fact that if if that's true, that to me is sort of, again, an indication of kind of this universality, if you will, of of everything. Everything is Stardust. We're all – it's a universal – not a mind, but sort of a universal form of existence.
2: Well, wouldn't it be great, John, if all of us can just realize and accept the fact that we are all one?
0: (laughs) Yeah, well – I, I, yeah, that's John Lennon all over again. But it yeah, It sure is, though.
2: <laughs> but it's, it's just true, though, as cliche as it is.
0: No, it is true. Absolutely true. I wish that would happen.
2: Me too. A lot of um, issues and troubles that we all face as uh, humans today, as separated as we are, we definitely still have that common bond that many overlook. And it's quite sad.
0: Yeah. Our separations are all artificial. They're based on lines drawn on map. You know, they're based on religions, nationalities, but they're not, those aren't, you know, those aren't true identities.
2: I hear you. And Philip Blair in the chat room wants me to ask if you have any cool accounts from Romania.
0: Well, you know, I I was in Romania uh, and I went to all the Dracula sites. (laughs) Look
2: how lucky John is here, ladies and gentlemen.
0: (laughs) Well, the thing is, uh, if you're going to talk about vampires, if you can talk about shapeshifters, you're going to have to talk about vampires True. as one, for right. sure, right? Uh, and by doing that, then, of course, you're going to have to talk about Dracula. So I'm sure your audience knows a lot of that history already. It's pretty well known by now. But oh, yeah. When Bram Stoker wrote Dracula, you know, he had, never, he had never set foot in Romania at all. But he did meet a Hungarian uh, professor who told him a lot about Vlad Tepish Dracul, who was a prince of uh, Wallachia in Transylvania during the 15th century and Dracul d r a c u l was the family name, and he put an "a after it Dracula it means son of Dracul, so here he had this prince Vlad Tepish Dracula, who was the son of vlad tepish Dracul <laughs> um and so Stoker heard some of the stories about this guy, and he was he was a pretty tough guy um The Turks were invading uh, that whole area of the world, Transylvania, Romania. And, you know, he was a Christian uh, prince and it was his duty to fight the Turks. And he did. He held them off, uh, but he did it in very brutal ways. There was a story about him capturing as many as 10,000 Turkish soldiers and then impaling them, you know, literally right. sticking a, yeah, a, a pointed spear up from the posterior right up through the mouth or the back of the head to the neck. Um, and that doesn't kill you. It's a lingering death. And he lined this road with these 10,000 Turks impaled. So when the main army of the Turks came through and they saw that, they just basically turned around and said, you know, this is a good day to go somewhere else. Maybe let's go fishing or something, you know. <laughs> so they left. Um, and he had, he had a lot of encounters with Turks. And so the Romanians, uh, the, the Ro- Romanian Romanians, and I'll explain that by that what I mean in a minute, uh, they consider him a national hero you know, because he he kept pushing the Turks back and kept keeping Romania for Romanians. But in Transylvania, there's a very heavy population of Hungarians, because that was part of Hungary before it was Romania. And the Hungarians look at Vlad in a whole different light, because he was all about Romania for Romanians. So he oppressed the Hungarians, he oppressed German merchants that were in many of the cities of Romania. uh, And sometimes he... Use the same kind of punishment and torture on them as he did on enemies of the nation. So he got this reputation, and I think that's what Stoker was working on because the reputation kind of grew along with him, and it became to the point where people started thinking somebody this this horrible, this this mean, this vicious must be evil. You know, he, so if he's evil, must be more than that. He must be some kind of an evil demonic kind of person oh wait he must be a vampire and so it kind of got attached to him uh and you know that's that's where the story starts so i went to some sites i went to the home where he was born oh wow Uh, it's in a town called it's in a town called sigish which is really very neat it's a walled city um and it's a unesco world heritage site because it's one of the few sort of medieval walled cities there i went to uh, the monastery where he's buried. Uh, and this was really great. It's called Snagov Monastery. And it's in a lake. There's a little tiny island. I mean an island that's probably maybe two acres, if that. And it's right in the middle of the lake. And you have to walk across this long pedestrian bridge from the shore to get out to the, uh, to the monastery. And in the monastery, I have these pictures, by the way, my book is illustrated. And so there's some photos I have in there of some of this Dracula stuff. There's a picture of me in the monastery uh, at the tomb, at the grave of Vlad Tepes Drácula. The only thing is, he's not in there, uh, which is is very interesting. Sometime in the 30s, like 1930 or 33 or something, there were some archaeologists, I guess, that were really trying to verify where he was. And so they opened up the grave, and there wasn't anything in there. Wow, It was empty, which kind of leads more credence to the vampire story, doesn't it?
2: It does. It does. And (laughs) speaking of which, uh, there's been a couple of films, uh, horror and fantasy films about Vlad the Impaler. There's Mm -hmm. one called Dracula Untold. I'm not quite sure if you've seen that version of it.
0: I don't think so, but it's actually not,
2: it's not bad.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's, he's a very interesting character. I mean, um, Unfortunately, I think he is so loaded down with with legend and and everything else that it's hard to probably get a really good indication you take of, yeah yeah of of who he really was uh, but he, you know and he's considered kind of ruthless and vicious, but that isn't relatively unusual for a medieval prince I mean medieval days were pretty tough, They're, and he yeah. did what you had to do a lot of times to maintain your little fiefdom or whatever
2: and and speaking of these sort of films, are you a fan of horror films?
0: Yeah, I am. <laughs>
2: nice. What was yeah, the last I, one you saw?
0: Uh, last one I saw was actually um, was uh, I? Well, it wasn't The Conjuring, was it? Maybe it was. But, but I've been watching um, on Amazon Prime. I've been catching up on American Horror Story. That's also which, good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I forgot about that one, so I've been catching up on that one. But when I was a kid, you talked about you know how you were reading werewolf stories and stuff like that. I used to get all these. Um, horror fan magazines, you know. So I, I'm considerably older, I think, probably than you. And I used to have these pictures, of you know, Lon Chaney and Bela Lugosi and Christopher Lee and all these guys. Uh, and I used to eat that stuff up. <laughs> the Monster from the Green Lagoon, Black Lagoon. And, so you know, obviously, Golden
2: you're a big fan of Werewolf in London.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's that's a that's a good one. I think that was probably the first movie. I think that really sort of depicted um that transformation you know and and how how difficult it was and how painful it was and how and then the howling too followed up and that was pretty brutal yes an know?
2: american werewolf in london by the way that's the more accurate title oh. 1981 by the way
0: mm-hmm. it's, a great, it's yeah. a great film it was and that I think that and I like the hauling. I think those are the two that are really, really good.
2: Yes, and uh, speaking of which there hasn't really been any good Bigfoot movies. I don't even recall one good one, to be quite honest with you. I'm kind of disappointed.
0: Yeah, I think there was I think there was a comic one not too long ago about a kid in Bigfoot, and Bigfoot was just kind of this goofy yeah, kind you're, of
2: you're thinking of Harry and
0: the Henderson's. Yeah 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 right that's longer than a couple of years isn't it but yeah you're right Harry and Henderson's <laughs>
2: Yeah you're going back to the 80s there i think
0: Yeah well I'm probably 80s still really 90s in i 80s.
2: think 80s <laughs> 80s early 90s i'm not quite sure if i even remember but my goodness you know that reminds me there was even the movie on Slenderman who of course is a fictional character i'm not right. quite sure if you're familiar with that but the whole Slenderman thing that really took uh, over for a while online
0: Right. It came... I mean, didn't that come out of... Wasn't that in Minecraft or something that Slender Man appeared? I'm not even quite yeah.
2: sure, but that one took off as well as the whole
0: Momo challenge. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Good Lord. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Well, see, this is... this is well, they're not necessarily shapeshifters, but this is what I was talking about in my book, too, is, is how shapeshifters have gotten into pop culture. You know, uh, we, we're talking about movies here, but... There's a Twilight series of, of books and, and TV. There's True Blood. Uh, there's, there's a million and a half products, you know, food products and beverages and toys and everything that are shapeshifters or based on shapeshifters. When I was in Romania, uh, the, the home that Dracula, Vlad Tepish Dracula, was born in is now a restaurant and it's called Casa Dracula, of course. Oh, right? <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Casa and Dracula. You, it's great because uh, on the they serve the the plate has this dragon crest. Every plate that you get, you know, has a dragon crest on it. And Dracul also um it, it also means dragon, so it's like son of the dragon. Word. So that, that yeah. crest is everywhere. And you can go in and at the bar you can buy bottles of wine that are Dracula has it has (laughs) Vlad the Impaler's picture on it and it says Dracula Merlot or, you know, Dracula, Dracula Cabernet Sauvignon, you know, whatever. So it's become so, uh, so much of our culture that, you know, it's bottled wine and everything else. And it's not just vampires. It's werewolves. It's everything.
2: I'm going to put a photo up in the chat room now of what I believe is the bar of what we are discussing here. Casa de Dracula.
0: Yep, Casa Dracula.
2: And I'm seeing it right now. Look at that, boys and girls. A uh, Very lovely bar. <laughs> like the red. That's uh, yep.
0: very nice. That's that is the place. Now, on the right – I'm looking at it as well. On the right-hand side, you can see a bunch of bottles lined up there. And I think, I think the ones right in front of the guy with the white shirt uh, who's behind the bar – it's like a kind of a gold color. It looks like a shelf label or something. I think those are the bottles I'm talking about, maybe right there. Oh, wow. Anyway, yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, and so this place, oh, so the funny thing about this place, too, is for a couple extra, uh, I forgot what the Romanian, oh, it's their lays. For a couple extra lays, and that's coins, you can go upstairs, and there's a room that is all in red light, you know? And so, of course, your eyes have to adjust. And when you walk in, you see, it's kind of dark and it's red glow, and there's a coffin laying there. It's a full size coffin, and when you stand there, all of a sudden the, the lid pops open, and this guy sits up with his hands across his chest, and he's got <laughs> fangs, and he's got blood coming down his shirt and stuff. You know, I see it though so, <laughs> It's a little campy, you know, a little over the top. I like it. It's so hacky. It it, it is so. Oh yeah, it definitely is. I, well, I
2: mean, sometimes you gotta love hacky and cheesy stuff.
0: Well, they've made they've made a whole cottage industry out of this stuff. There's a city in Romania called Brand, Bran, B R A N, and Bran Castle sits up on this uh upon a mountain. It's it's a beautiful castle. And um that's the one that apparently Stoker used as the model or Count Dracula's castle in his uh, in his novel. There's the guy. There you go. I just saw that. Yeah, exactly. And so it's usually some poor college kid. that has got a summer <laughs> job, you know, and he's got to sit up there. and He's got to moan when he go. It's well, very
2: cheesy. But I mean, at least he's not having to wear like a full costume.
0: Yeah. Right. 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 Like
2: a whole animal bodysuit per se. Yeah, like a mat, like that. That would be way worse. Actually, playing that, it's not so bad. Uh, but, he's
0: laying down, you know. He's kind of resting. Not much to do. But look at that but, one. Look at that see. painting right there. Oh yeah, oh yeah, 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 yeah. This place was. I mean, it's a really, it's, it's a very cool place. Yeah, definitely so, got to go there at Brand Castle. So as you approach the castle, you walk through a marketplace, and the marketplace is nothing but Dracula stuff. I mean. Dracula T-shirts, you know, fake fangs, mm. uh, you know, bloody things, uh, images of Vlad, Dracula books, Dracula statues, candles, anything you can possibly imagine, and it's crowded. That marketplace is is crowded, so it's a it's a money maker for Romania. Uh, so they they're happy to promote Dracula.
2: Yes, they really are, and of course, I'm looking now at a, a photograph of some of the food there. Now oh. I'm getting now I'm getting super hungry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not kidding. Look at that, folks. Can you see that now in the chat room
0: there, John? Uh, I don't see it yet. I just see uh, it hasn't come up yet. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that looks good. Oh, okay. So the thing on the left... Oh, I had that. So <laughs>
2: Did you really? Oh, my God.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that's bread, right? It's like a big... Um, oh, that is bread. Of bread. And they cut the top off, and it's hollowed out inside. And it's like... Um... It's like a stew inside. Uh, okay. So you eat, you know, you eat the stew and then you eat the bread. It was really, yeah, yummy. It was really great. So I just said that it was really good. Was really, really good.
2: Well, now you know what I'm going to do after the show.
0: <laughs> go to Romania.
2: I'm going to fly <laughs> to Romania. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm going to take uh, Jeffrey Epstein's plane. There you go. <laughs> uh, I know yeah. that was completely tasteless, but totally appropriate okay. for uh, tonight. After all that's been going on, my goodness. And now I'm looking at the menu here. Yeah, is that the menu?
0: I think so. Yeah.
2: Damn, John, you've really so. had a good feast out there.
0: Yeah I, yeah. I mean, I have to say the trip was great. So that's part of what I like about so cool. my line of work is doing the research, you know? Oh, my. I, I don't
2: blame you. That That's some good research there. You get to go around the world and have some fine food and talk about some very interesting subjects, my friend.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely.
2: And of course, we are winding down here just a bit, John. So I definitely want you to uh, plug your website. And, of course, sure. yeah, and after that, I definitely want to ask you just a
0: few more questions before I let you go. Yeah, sure. So my rep, my website is johnkachuba.com. It says, you can see it there, johnkachuba.com. And on the website, uh, there's various tabs. I have a blog on the website called Metaphysical Traveler, um, and there's entries there from some of my visits around the world as well as some guest postings, from some other people that do a lot of work. It's a it's a variety of interesting paranormal metaphysical things there. But you can also get uh, my books. There's a tab for books. When you go there, all my books are listed there, including Shapeshifters. Um, now, you can click on the book, and it'll take you to the publisher. You can get it direct there. But Shapeshifters is also I – mean, you can get it in the bookstores and everything else like that. Uh, it's available. It's only been out in the U.S. now for just a little over a month. So you may not find it right away in your bookstore, but ask for it. It's available and they can get it. Amazing stuff. The other thing on there, too, I just want to quickly say is I have something called Schedule of Appearances. And actually, your show is listed on there right now. Nice. Um, As is everything else that I do. So if people want to come out and see me at a library, uh, I do most of my stuff in Ohio, but I'll be in Canada. I'll be in Windsor and Toronto, Canada later in the year. I'll be in the Republic of Georgia in September but I'm not sure any of your listeners will be out there. But you, you never, never know. know. <laughs>
2: yeah, you never know. They might be. Never
0: know. So anyway, that's all there, Joe.
2: Perfect, perfect, perfect. And of course, earlier uh, I discussed Elon Musk, who has been wanting to implant and link the brain with a smartphone. I'm not sure yeah. if you caught some of that, but very cur- Yeah, very curious. What you think about Elon Musk wanting to insert a Bluetooth-enabled implant into your brain?
0: <laughs> well. I'm not sure how I feel about it, but I would say that it's probably going to happen at some point for everybody anyway. I would not be surprised if sometime in the future, maybe not that long from here, as soon as you're born, a little chip is implanted in your brain. And that's how we're going to all communicate and learn and stay in touch with each other. We won't even have to use devices.
2: I just hope it doesn't end up giving us brain cancer.
0: Well, it Yeah. Could be.
2: That's my possibly. only concern, but we got to hope for the best. And of course, John, after all the years you researched all these things and dedicated most of your life to this topic, is there any location, and people are big on locations, Are there? Is there any location that you personally feel is legitimately haunted?
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think some of the places that I've investigated, I think several of the places that I've gone to, I feel have definite you know something very definite going on in in a spiritual way, the real um, deal McCoy, yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I can think even even right here in ohio and I think there's a lot of places like that, but I think in Ohio there's a couple of places I think the uh the it's it's called it was originally called the Athens Lunatic Asylum, which is in Athens, Ohio, and it's now part of Ohio University, but it's an old building it was built in the eighteen seventies as a very large um, mental institute and of course in those days they had ways of treating mental illness that we you know we don't we don't like to talk about now because that's just how they did things it was kind of rough on patients but you know they were, they were working in science as best they could but there's a lot of things um a lot of things happened there there's been a lot of apparitions i've gotten some really great evps electronic voice phenomena out of that place i think also the ohio state reformatory in mansfield ohio that's really well known and I think there's I think there's legitimate activity going on there too, so I, I think there's really a lot of places. A lot of places. I think yeah, I think spirits yeah. are with us all the time.
2: I think uh, you're right. And John is Ohio for lovers.
0: <laughs> that was Virginia, <laughs> but uh, what is what is the new Ohio motto? I'm not even <laughs> sure what it is, but it's not that anymore. It's something like Ohio has it all, or something I see. like. I yeah.
2: <laughs> Incredible <laughs> stuff. generic and meaningless. Great stuff, John. I do want to thank you for being a part of the program it's been an absolute honor and pleasure to have you finally back on the program it's always so fun to catch up with you John
0: yeah well thank you Michael it's been it's been fun doing it and uh, yeah i enjoyed it thank you again
2: yeah we got to do this again and hopefully not in a couple years like last time
0: <laughs> well okay my good all
2: right my friend have a good night and be safe out there John
0: all right thank all right. you take mahalo. care mahalo bye
2: And there he goes, ladies and gentlemen. That was the one and only John Kachuba. Great guest, great person. Love talking to him. And of course, I do want to thank Mr. Frank Bacon, who did take assignment of co-hosting here during the first half with Paul Mamakos, another great, great individual. And of course, I want to thank all of you out there for sticking around through all the mess here. But we got through the night as we usually do. And as we wrap it up here tonight, folks, I do want to thank the international listeners out there and those in the chat room. Always, always an honor and pleasure to do the program here and entertain all of you, I hope, uh, just for a few minutes here. And, of course, I want to thank the listeners in California, out there in Mountain View and Los Angeles and San Jose and Apple Valley and San Diego Writing, Sacramento, and, of course, Santa Rosa. Lots of listeners in that area, and of course, want to thank the great folks in Texas. Lots of listeners out there. Love all of you out there in Texas, and And of course, the United Kingdom, and Canada, Australia, France, the Netherlands, and Ireland, all showing up here on the map. So many great, great folks out there, and of course, those on the Fringe FM, and other great networks out there that run this program i do appreciate all of you out there too it's a great time and of course for those that haven't signed up please go to the patreon page oh yes patreon for those that don't know i said this before and i'll say it again we are starting up the patreon and that's going to be a lot of fun folks you will be able to hear me completely raw and unfiltered oh yes lots of things you will learn about me I finally get to talk about all sorts of stuff that has been going on behind the scenes here on the program. Oh, yeah, it's going to get nasty and pretty messy. This will be exclusive content only for those who donate to the Patreon. And I do want to thank Mr. Robin Wills out there who dropped $1.99 on the Super Chats. Thank you very much. But yes, this will be exclusive content that you won't find on the podcast version of the program. This is only for those hardcore listeners out there. Oh, yes. And of course, for those that do donate over at MichaelDeacon.com, right hand side of the page, $5, that's all it takes. And I'll supply you with that digital crack, as they say, patreon.com forward slash Michael Deacon. Stay safe, everyone, no matter where you are on this island, Earth. And with that said, the world is a mysterious place and life itself is a mystery. Until next time. Good night, everybody.